Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Movies in Focus podcast. I'm Niall Brown. This is an extra long episode of the podcast, simply because of who my guest is. He's an acclaimed screenwriter and director, a man responsible for some of the most iconic films of the last 40 years. Mega hits and cult classics, such as 48 Hours, Commando, Die Hard, The Running Man, Die Hard 2, Hudson Hawk, Street Fighter, Judge Dredd, Tomb Raider, and more litter his filmography. That's not to take into account television shows such as The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Knight Rider, V, and Tales from the Crypt. Yes, my guest today is none other than the great Stephen E. D'Souza. In this episode, we talk about how he broke into the movie and television business and became one of the most sought-after screenwriters in Hollywood. The conversation is filled with movie trivia, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, and all sorts of great tales that you don't want to miss. It's one of my favourite episodes of the Movies in Focus podcast, and I'm sure it's going to be yours too. This is my chat with Stephen E. D'Souza, and as always, I hope you enjoy what we had to talk about. You're, you're one of those guys that I've watched so many movies with your name in the title, and uh-huh. it, I always know that I'm in for a fun movie when I see when I see. Well, thank you. Um, let's just backtrack to the beginning. You started writing in TV. How did you get into sort of writing screenwriting in, in itself? Oh, first, that's a. Um, are, are you uh, are you just running the uh, the uh, audio of this, or are you going to post our, our interview here? Just the audio. Okay, because I was going to say I could change the lighting here, but it's hot. It's hot as hell, and there's no air conditioning in this room. So in that case, I'll take my clothes off. No, no, I'm just kidding. no. It's not. The, it's not that hot. All right. Well, this is a really long story. I don't know if you want that much. Maybe you'll edit this down. I mean, how far back do you want to go? Technically, I've been a professional writer uh, since I was in high school. I actually uh, had my first professional appearance in print when I was my a senior in high school, and I wrote for. Wait a second here. I have to get up for a moment. I wrote a, an article for a men's magazine, right? Okay. It was a magazine um, uh, called uh, uh, called Rogue, which was trying to be like Playboy or Esquire. It tried to split the difference. It had um, some very reputable, well-known uh, uh, writers. Harlan Ellison was a writer or an editor for it. Um, they published you know, legitimate stuff. In the end, they just, they sort of, new management came in and they just you know, ended up being a rag. But uh, let me just, I'm going to step away for a moment, just a moment. So, so this, is, this, this is one of the covers, right, from, from back in the day, from the 1960s. Right. Uh, so they had, like, instead of a bunny, they had a wolf. Pretty subtle, <laughs> you know, was, was their character. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I'll be right back. I'll put this back in a minute. Uh, so uh, maybe uh, uh, I ended up writing a funny article about movie cliches. It was like you know, like about like bad movies, a funny mm-hmm. piece. Um, so I bring it to school and I'm showing it to some of my friends. And the teacher says, what are you passing around back there? And, some, and bring that up here. He says, "Who's who owns this this piece of trash? <laughs> now, Mr. Sousa, we frown on pornography in our school. You are going to the principal's office. And we're going to call your parents in for a conference. It's very serious. So I go to the uh, uh, to the principal's office to bring the psychiatrist in as well. This is my second experience with the psychiatrist in in, in my school system. I will come back to the first time with you. Um, so uh, they say, you know, this is a very serious uh, thing, and uh, we've called your parents. Uh, I think your your uh, mother said she was trying around your father up and come over. 
what possessed you to bring this in? I said, well, I, 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 I didn't bring it for the pictures. I have an article in there. What do you mean? And I said, I wrote an article there. It's like, I think behind the centerfold. So now the principal opens it up and he goes, son of a bitch, that's your name. Wow. What is this? He says, oh yeah, that's pretty funny. What do they pay you for this? I think it was $75. Well, that's fantastic. That's great. Um, you want to be a writer? Uh, yeah. They were like, okay. All right, all right, thanks. Well, that's great. Well, take this home. Don't bring it back. And call his parents. They don't have to come in. So at the end of the day, when they do the school announcements, they'll say, um, the um, soccer field is being reseeded. So soccer practice will be on the softball field. Uh, uh, the uh, away game for uh, baseball, board the bus in the parking lot. And congratulations to uh, one of our seniors, Stephen D'Souza, who was published in, um, who was published today. Um, and then uh, from that point on, over the next few years, uh, I was uh, writing uh, as a freelance writer um, for a variety of magazines. I had some prestigious appearances. I wrote for the New York Times uh, uh, entertainment section, but in a, a big year, like the most it would be like maybe $1,500. In fact, if, you, if a, as a writer yourself, you may have heard the sad news that freelance prices are no better now than they were 30, 40 yeah. years ago. In fact, they're lower in some cases. Um, so um, then uh, I studied uh, motion picture uh, and, and uh, television at, uh, at university. Uh, but at this time, um, this is like in the late 60s, uh, these departments, separate few places, NYU and UCLA, USC, they didn't really have organized uh, departments. So when I went to Penn State, uh, the, uh, the, the, the film course was kind of cobbled together. It was literature courses in write, short story writing, playwriting, uh, video production, uh, radio broadcasting. They really hadn't you know, pulled it together yet. In fact, there was no script writing class at all. There was a playwriting class. Um, so I had a strange experience at the end of my uh, second year. Uh, I had one of my instructors come to me and say, listen, Stephen, I don't know what your plans are, but you know what? You should just go to Hollywood now. Like you're ready. I mean, you're not going to learn any more than you know now or, or right here in school. Well, that's a strange thing to, to hear from uh, an instructor. So I was giving it, you know, a serious uh, consideration. Um, but then um, my uh, draft number came up uh, and uh, I knew I had to, uh, and I had to go in the army. So that delayed things uh, for a good period of time. What was really strange in the army, I never said a word about my ambitions, um, uh, but somehow I acquired the nickname Hollywood, maybe because I was wearing sunglasses all the time. I don't know why, but they, they, somehow I acquired that nickname. Um, so anyway, um, when I got out of the army, um, I got married early uh, and uh, I said, now I've got to find, uh, find work. And I see an advertisement in the newspaper. It says, uh, writers, directors, producers wanted for a television station. Now, normally an advertisement like that is a con. It, it, it really would not be plausible. But what happened was that the public broadcasting station was opening up near me in Trenton, New Jersey, which is right across the river from where I lived. I lived in, in uh, Bucks County, near where Washington across the Delaware. So I lived in that area. And because they were taking state and federal funds, you know, like PBS does, yeah. they had to run advertising the newspaper for uh, all of their jobs. So I figured, all right, I could apply for this. So I uh, drive to the, I get my uh, press clippings together. By this time I had, uh, oh, a, a couple of dozen appearances in print in various magazines. Um, and um, I uh, had uh, 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 go to the meeting and put a jacket and tie and I'm drive across the bridge. Washington came up, took a boat. There's a bridge now. And uh, I drive looking for the address and where is the tele where is the TV station? So I go around the block three times 
And the third time I come around, they're putting a canvas sign over a bowling alley sign. What they had done, they had bought a bowling alley because the high, if you think about it, bowling alley, the high ceiling, the what, like it converted into a studio. And so they had the, the, the sign was a bowling ball and a pin. So they put this canvas sign over. It still had the same shape. Uh, but it said you know, New, and, and New Jersey Public Broadcasting. So I go inside and they're um, hammering the sawing. They're creating like a studio out of it. And I noticed it didn't register at that point, but they left two lanes off on one side because they had a contract to uh, broadcast the show Bowling for Dollars. Right. So they kept two <laughs> lanes so they could, you know, so Studio C was the two bowling lanes. So I asked around, they said, who do you see that guy? He's hiring. And they had set up kind of a fake cubicle with just some plywood and, you know, just to make a little room. And I walk around the corner and I see this, uh, you know, older man uh, who has uh, his pants rolled up. No, it's not what you think. And he's scratching his stump. He's missing a leg. Now, this did not throw me because I was a medic in the army. I'd seen my share of stumps. So I say, hi, hello, I'm here for you. Oh, hello. I said, listen, I, I'm here about the, uh, the ad for, for a writer. Uh, I saw it. Uh, oh, really? What have you done? Well, I've written for many publications, and I open up the portfolio. And he goes, oh, oh New York Times. I go, oh, Rogue. I, oh, yeah, I know that one. That's the one he recognized, right? He says, well, you really are a writer. My gosh, my God. I, I, none of the people we've hired had, had anywhere this kind of background. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we've, we, we've filled, we have a short list of people. We've hired all the writers already. I'd love to find you something. So now I'm ready to say, listen, I'll be a production assistant. You know, I'll take anything. And he looks at his list and says, we still have an opening for a writer slash producer, right? Have you, ever produced, <laughs> have you ever produced anything? So I go, yeah. Uh, and then I go in the back of my book and there's an article about a film I made in high school, which I wouldn't even show. It just happened to be, in fact, I'd taken it out of the plastic sleeve because I thought that was too desperate. <laughs> so I show him that and he says, all right, so you're hired. But So I got hired as a writer producer, right, from the get-go. So I worked at the station for um, a little over a year. It's going to take us eight hours to get to today. Should I keep going this granular? Or you, want to you, you can sort of skip along, but yeah, no, right, it's, right. it's good right. where you started. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get myself to Hollywood and then, <laughs> then we'll jump ahead, okay. Um, so, and, and it was local television uh, and not very particularly exciting. And uh, the, I had very, the writing I did was like, you know, interstitial things for people to say and, uh, Occasionally, we did a funny little documentary about like astrology. We asked people on the street, what's your sign? Nothing very dramatic. So at this time, this is around, um, I guess, uh, 1970 or 71. Um, this is when just the really super independent films were starting to bubble up in America. And it occurred to me, you know what? I think you don't need Hollywood. You can just make a movie. So I, in, in the course of working at this television station, uh, I met like-minded people, creative people who wanted to do something. And we said, let's make a motion picture. And I made a, I wrote a script, um, which I, uh, and I got some friends together. We raised some independent money. And it was like a uh, stoner movie. It was like a Cheech and Chong movie. But this is one of the very first ones, probably between, between Reefer Madness in the 1930s and Cheech and Chong, this is the only one in that 40 <laughs> year gap. Um, so uh, as we put this together, I said, well, we'll film on the weekends. And I'm just thinking about, you know, if you rent the film equipment on Friday, you don't have to bring it back till Monday morning. It's like you get it at three day. We'll do it that way. And a fellow who worked at the station, who was going to be our sound our sound operator, said, "You know, Stephen, my brother in law uh, has a film rental house 
in down in Philadelphia. He's just trying to keep compete with the bigger outfits. I could get you an amazing rate. You know, what are they, what are they charging you? There were like two film rental houses. I, he says, he can undercut that. Uh, great. I said, let's make a deal with him. And he brings me the paperwork and we sign it. So now for, um, uh, I don't know, about seven months, we're filming this movie on weekends. So one day I come into the TV station uh, and uh, the security guard at the door says, uh, uh, don't go into your office. The head of the station wants to see you. I go, what about this? I don't know. They just said, go right there. So I go in there uh, and, and there's like the head of the, the, uh, of the station is there. Uh, the, the guy from the legal department is there. And my sound engineer with the brother-in-law is in a chair with tears streaming down his face. He says, I had no choice, Steve. I had to tell them the truth. And I go, the truth what? So it turns out there was no brother-in-law. He did not have a brother-in-law with the film rental company. Because he worked on the crew, he had a key to the equipment closet. And because <laughs> this was like a, 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 this was a state of New Jersey, PBS station, they kept sort of like, you know, civil service hours. So, you know, unless they were, if, unless they were doing something live, which they really didn't, they pretty much shut down like at six o'clock. So he would wait till everybody left. He would go into the equipment room, take the, State of New Jersey, public broadcasting stations, equipment, cameras, sound recorders, lights, put them in his van and pretend they were coming from his brother-in-law. And he even had like invoices printed up for the imaginary thing. So I go, I didn't know anything about this. It's too bad. You're out. You're fired. You're lucky. We are not taking legal action against you for appropriating government you know, uh, property. It would just be too embarrassing. So this is obviously a blow. Uh, so now what am I going to do? So I said, you know what? Okay, uh, this is a sign. Uh, I don't want to be 40 years old and have never tried, you know, show business, show business. I am going to like go out to Hollywood and I have an uncle and aunt out there. I'm sure they'll let me, you know, sleep on their sofa bed. Um, I think I could, uh, uh, let me see. My resources are very thin. And I, you know, I'm not out of working now. I can get unemployment and we qualify for food stamps. Meanwhile, my wife is driving 25 miles so that no one sees her use the food stamps. And I say, honey, someday I will make so much money. I will pay back in tax to the federal government what I'm taking for like, you know, for 10 weeks of food stamps. Anyway, uh, so I at this time, remember at, at college, they only had playwriting courses. So I didn't even know what screenwrite format was. You could get books, but the, a lot of the books that are published, they don't put the real format in. So I took the train up to New York. There was a bookstore called Cinemabilia, which is uh, now legendary, uh, but it was one of the few stores that was just all, all books from all over the world about cinema. So I went up there. Oh, I, I've got to take this call. Could you just hold on for a second? Yep, yep. no worries. Right, hold on. I'll just step away for this one. Okay. Hello? Yes. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, you have a phone number for me to use? Okay, just a second. I'm going to hand the phone to my wife because I want another call. Uh, isn't this something that's got kind of an outpatient thing as I understand this? Thing? 
Sorry, I had to go. I've been trading calls with my doctor for uh, a couple times. Oh, no it's, not a, it's not a tumor. No, <laughs> no it's it, 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 it's a pretty minor thing. Uh, I've just been trading calls with him. He, uh, anyway, so um, uh, so I go up to there and I buy several books on screenplay format. And then I come back home and I sat down and I knew that all of my examples of writing in print and prose, New York Times, doesn't matter. It doesn't show you can write a screenplay. So uh, I sat down and in two months, I wrote two spec scripts of the two uh, genres that kept me in high school an extra year because I always have had uh, uh, Raymond Chandler or, or uh, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov behind my algebra book. So I wrote a science fiction script, the science fiction horror script, and I wrote a, uh, a, a Hitchcockian crime thriller in my mind. And when I finished these th two things, uh, as it happened, um, just right before I was going to pay my trip, some drunk driver crashed into our car parked in the street uh, and pretty much totaled it and fled. So we sold that car for scrap. That paid for a round trip to Los Angeles. And I say, all right, honey, I'm going off. I'm going to just give myself three months to be successful in Hollywood. That sounds reasonable. If I can't make it in three months, I guess it wasn't in the cards. So uh, I arrived in, in uh, Los Angeles on a Saturday. My, my, my um, cousin picks me up. I you know, unpack at my aunt and uncle's house. And then Sunday morning, I look in the newspaper and I figure, you know, maybe I should look for a real job. It might take me a few weeks before I get hired in studio. I don't know how these things work. So I see uh, two ads that I, I could apply for. One is a uh, proofreader at a publishing company. And I've been on the high school newspaper, college newspaper. I, as you probably know, I know all the little squiggles, you know, yep. all the little symbols for, for paragraph, you know, spelling, transpose, all that stuff. And the other ad was for um, telesales. For aluminum siding and i'd been on the uh you know I, i'd been on the radio station in college you know i said i, I, I could do that and then my eye catches another thing that says are you good at crossword puzzles contestants wanted for a new game show show up at this address uh at uh at uh, at one o'clock uh monday morning monday afternoon so i get oh, all right monday sorted so i you know go first to the um proofreading place and the guy says i saw you're at okay uh, and he says, you, you sound like you're from the East Coast. What brings you to um, Los Angeles? You know, yada, yada, show business. Okay, all right, okay. Well, yeah, well, we get a lot of that. All right, here, here's a, some galleys. Proofread this and then, you know, uh, bring it and I'll come back and check on you. So it's a, I go through this one, two, three. Uh, maybe it takes me 10 minutes and I'm looking, I can't find them. Finally, I find him in the break room flirting with the secretary. I says, yeah, I'm done. He says, you can't be done. I said, yeah, I'm done. He says, maybe you want to go back and say, no, no, I, you know, I'm fine. He looks at it and he says, man, I've been here 12 years. You're the first person that ever got a 100% score. Okay, well, thank you. I've, you know, I've done it before. Well, listen, if you're not working for Warner Brothers, ha, 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 you can start here next Monday, right? And here's the salary. Fine. Now I'm running late. I run to the uh, um, telemarketing guy. Talk for a little bit. Hey, you sound like you're from the East Coast. Uh, what brings you here? Yada, yada, yada. He says, um, uh, okay, well, uh, here, read this script. And he sits back and he gives me a script. And then I drop into my radio voice. You know, your home is the most valuable investment you've made. It's the future you'll leave to your children and grandchildren. You must protect that equity and nothing protects your equity well, against the elements like a, your, wow, that was fantastic. That was great. All right. If you don't, if you're not working for Paramount Pictures next week, ha ha ha, you can start here Monday. So now I go to the television studio where there's a huge mob that has seen this ad and wants to be on television. So they give out a crossword puzzle that is kind of a middle school really simple crossword puzzle to eliminate people who like, you know, are just hopeless. And sure enough, half the crowd drops out. 
Then they say, we're going to take a break for 20 minutes, coffee, cigarettes, come back in. They come back in. They ask everyone to get up in front of the room, which now has maybe 75, maybe 100 people left. Get up in front of the room and say a little bit about yourself. And this is to weed out people who will freeze in front of an audience because a game show is taped in front of an audience. And sure enough, a couple of people get up there and, and, and just choke. But the ones who don't choke invariably say something like, hi, my name is Betty Johnson, and I was uh, voted uh, uh, Miss, uh, Miss Horticulture uh, at the Iowa State Fair and hold it. So after two or three of these people, like our beauty contest winners, the guy running this says, how many people are here because they came to Los Angeles to be in show business? And most of the people in the room raised their hand. And they say, look, um, the audience for the show is all over the country. It's off-putting. So tell your last real job. So my last real job, actually, while I was writing the screenplays, was I worked as a substitute teacher because the hours were good. So I said, I'm an English teacher. All right, fine. So now um, they say, here's how it works. We are going to practice you against each other, fake teams, uh, uh, for, for uh, all day, Tuesday and Wednesday. Be prepared to spend your all day, Tuesday and Wednesday. And then Thursday, we will record a week's worth of shows with the 10 best people. That's the deal. So that was the end. All right, so then I've accomplished a lot. So now I had one contact from the, uh, the film festival. I left out that the, the film that I made, the stoner film, uh, got some attention at a film festival, won an award, audience favorite. It was, you know, perfect time to have a stoner movie. Instead of yeah. My misfortune, I signed with a distributor who literally went bankrupt the week the movie came out. So the movie was like in eight theaters and then vanished. It's actually streaming now, but I don't know whether I should tell your audience where it is. Any, <laughs> any admiration they will have for me will be, will dissipate. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe you'll, 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 maybe, maybe you'll, you'll, you'll get me to, to admit it. Maybe you'll encourage people. My God, if this guy could start it, with this. It might do, yeah. All right. All right. So anyway, um, I had met a producer at the film festival who produced uh, uh, the Charlie's Angels TV show. And he says, if you're ever out to look me up, I'll give you an episode to, to write or direct. So I track him down. He's just gotten divorced. Charlie's Angels is canceled. And he's living in like one room in a motel that has been turned into an apartment building. So he says, look, you know, I can't help you, but I'll recommend you my agent. He makes a phone call in front of me. I'm with this young man. He's very talented. Yes, I've read his work. He's great. But okay, he's drop off your, your, your scripts for him. So I actually had, the, had that conversation on Sunday. So now that I've done all my business, I drive to the agent's office and I drop off my two scripts. A very good day or show business for me. So now the next day we go and we practice and we practice. Uh, and uh, I'm quickly one of the best people there. And so is another young lady. Uh, I remember her name to this day. Her name was Victoria Stevens. So we start, we're kind of laughing at the other contestants. Oh my God, look at these idiots, you know? And sure enough, people are dropping left and right. We survive. We're, one of, we're, we're two of the 10 people that are gonna be on the air. Uh, so I come back from rehearsal on Tuesday uh, on Wednesday, which is the last rehearsal, and I'm waiting for the phone call. They're going to tell us if we're on the show. You will be called this evening if you're coming back. I'm positive I will be because I, I did so well. And my aunt says, look, a package came for you. And it's my screenplays that, like, have only been gone 48 hours. I open them up. They look like they've been gone for months. They're ragged. They're beat up. You know how sometimes people put a script on the shelf sideways and they write the name on the edge so you can read yeah. it? That's been done. There's a coffee ring on one of them. And oh, one has one, yeah, and one of them, the cover page is missing. And there's a note, sorry, too busy to read these now, dictated but not read, which is insult injury, dictated but not read. It's a bus slip by the um 
head of the agency. So I call him the producer. He says, "Gee, I'm sorry, you're such an asshole. I, you know, you have to censor that. I guess asshole." Um, oh, feel free to curse. <laughs> all right, all right. So uh, that's depressing. Uh, and I get uh, my my hopes are raised when I get a call from the uh, television station. You are definitely recording tomorrow. Um, it, you know, being at uh, eight o'clock in the morning. And um, my aunt asked me about this package and uh, how this whole agent thing went wrong. And she said, you know, my best friend is the secretary of Merv Griffin, who had a talk show. He was a producer. He produced uh, Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. He was a big Hollywood figure at that time. Maybe uh, they're hiring writers for the game show. Somebody has to make up those questions. You're a smart guy. You know, you play Trivial Pursuit. So what, what the hell? You can do it. Great, great. I'll stop over there tomorrow uh, or during the lunch break. Uh, so um, I go over uh, to uh, the uh, show. It turns out I'm not scheduled to record my episode of the show till after lunch. Uh, so um, I, I, I can break away. I go to a CBS studio to meet her friend. And uh, I'm very excited. I walk past the Hollywood Square set. I see some famous people. Um, and I see her and she says, listen, um, I was trying to call you this morning, but you already left the house. I checked with Merv and we're not hiring any writers for the, for the, for the game shows. And, um, you know, there's no other thing here going on. And I go, oh, well, that's the disappointing. She says, well, wait a minute. There was a young lawyer who worked for Merv and I heard he became an agent. I have a contact number for him. Uh, maybe you can, um, uh, 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 you know, get something going with him. Great, great, great. In fact, their offices are right around the corner. So I've just enough time to swing by this agency's office before I get back to the studio for my debut on the game show. I go and this guy is actually taking things out of a carton and putting them in a desk. It's just literally his first day on the job. And I give him the two scripts. He says, um, uh, are you, um, uh, will, will you do television? What do you mean? Well, some people say they only do motion pictures. They only do the theater. And no, no, I'll do anything. Um, and uh, and, and uh, I've been pub you've been published. And yeah, yeah. And the producer, Charlie's Angels, will vouch for me. He's seen my work. Great, great. I'll read this stuff. I'll get back to you. Uh, so now I go on the show. And to my dismay, my dear friend, Victoria Stevens, we are pitted against each other because we are the two strongest players. I remember her name because I took her name, Victoria Stevens, as a portent. Think about it. Victory Stevens, you know. Yeah. So unfortunately, I killed her. I did have help. My partner was Betty White, one of the, nice. you know, the, you know, the celebrity partner. Yeah. So my partner was Betty White. Uh, what's funny, I have a recording of this uh, of this show. Uh, and remember, they said, you don't want to talk about being in show business. Be a real person. But you see, once I start winning, I sort of morph into, I guess, the person I am now, the show business person. I start <laughs> running the show. And I and like, we were, you know, I said, wait a minute. No, I got this one. And like, you see me slowly getting out of control. Anyway, remember, I came to Hollywood Saturday. This is Thursday. Yeah. I win a car. I win a car, a color TV, and a stereo. Obviously, I need the car in Los Angeles. That's off a good start. So now we go out, and all 10 people, we all celebrate. We go out to a restaurant. We get drunk. Even the losers got a consolation prize. Uh, so I roll back to my aunt and uncle's house pretty late, like 1.30 in the morning. Uh, and... Uh, she says, like, I'm in trouble. What, 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 like, I'm in high school. He says, this, this guy called and said, return his call no matter how late it is. So I call back, and it's the agent. And unlike the other guy, too busy to read these now, he's read these things both in one day. He says, I read your stuff. You absolutely can make it. Absolutely could work in this town. And I have already, uh, before I even left the office, I made copies, and I sent them to another client of mine who wants to meet you tomorrow. 
And I go, well, that's great. I would love to get some advice from an experienced, you know, Hollywood writer. He said, no, 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 no. This is not like about a pep talk. This agency represents writers, actors, directors, producers. This is a client of mine who is a producer. He's one of the producers of the Six Million Dollar Man TV show. And they and, and all of the Bionic Woman, Gemini Man, all these superhero shows. And they have a real problem finding writers who get it because the show is half science fiction and half police procedural, where every week we catch bad, they catch bad guys, usually communists. <laughs> and the writers who come out of, um, I'll have to help your audience, the writers who come out of a show that was on the air then, probably forgotten now, called Hawaii Five O. Those writers, those writers will say, "Okay, uh, the six million dollar man, the bad, bad guys are escaping helicopter. He flies up there. They go, he can't fly. What do you mean he can't fly? No, he can't. Why can't he fly? The cockamamie stupid show. Make him fly. They don't understand that it's that it's locked in. Yeah. And then science fiction writer comes in and says, "Oh, I totally know. He has an arm. He can he can run fast. I know he can't fly. So he jumps from roof to roof to get to the helicopter. Okay, all right, fine. Uh, and then he's takes the guys to prison and they go no 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 it's a secret that he has these superpowers he cannot do that he has to go undercover at the bad guys nightclub and get like evidence he can't like say i lose my magic eye to look through the window and see the the congressman getting paid off but your science fiction script over here and your crime script here shows you get both so you have an appointment there tomorrow so friday fresh from my triumph of winning a car i'm not even in town one week I go to Universal Studios and I go see the, the, this whole battery of people. It's like it's like America's Got Talent. They're they're at a table. This guy's client, Alan Walter, uh, Frank Telford, a well-established producer who they brought in from police shows. Leslie Stevens, who did the the, the uh, uh, Outer Limits, he's the science fiction angle, and Harv Bennett, who's more famous for doing all the Star Trek feature films. And they like say, "All right, tell us. We you know we've read your sample scripts." Um, tell us what you've got now at this time i already knew they were looking for me to start out on their um show which was an updated invisible man show called the gemini man okay. which is probably forgotten now but and the gimmick was the guy had a watch that would turn him uh invisible but if he used it for more than 15 minutes a day he would die that was the, uh, the that was the uh, gimmick so uh they said tell us a couple of ideas for the invisible man show i said okay um there's some bad there's some villains are uh doing some spy stuff. He's always say steal from the best. I like Hitchcock. So we're doing Lady on a Train. The villains are trying to get our Lady on a Train, who's not an old lady, but a hot young young girl. Uh, and he's fighting the commies at night in the train station. He's holding his own. One of them hits him over the head with a wrench, a spanner, excuse me for you. Hits him over <laughs> the head with a, with a spanner. He falls down unconscious. His wrist hits the railroad track. It hits the button. He turns invisible. And the conductor says, all aboard. And the train starts moving. So now my panel of judges, they'll go, whispering to each other. They go, what else you got? Okay, okay, I'll, I'll stick with, steal, with stealing from Hitchcock. We all know um, uh, Notorious, where Cary Grant has Ingrid Bergman infiltrate the Nazi spy ring. The Nazi, you think Claude Rains is the Nazi spy, but his mother's really running the whole show. Only we do that. He doesn't need, our guy doesn't need Ingrid Bergman because he can turn invisible to spy on them. Uh, he goes inside. The commies are having their whole meeting about doing evil communist stuff to America. And the mother turns to our hero and says, can I get you a beverage? Because she's blind. And as far as she's concerned, he's just another one of the communists in the room. So at this point, Harv Bennett jumps up from behind the table, 
comes around, grabs me and kisses me on the cheek. And he says, finally, somebody who gets it. The trick is what is the problem with being a superhero? Yeah. Not to be right. Find the problems, get the hero in a pickle. He says, that's great. Okay, listen, um, this is just great. Um, you can see uh, Dorothy uh, out, out there in the lobby uh, about parking. And I go, uh, oh, I don't need to, I don't need a, a parking validation. You know, my 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 cousin dropped me off. She uh, call, call her, she picked me up. No, 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 not parking today. For your assigned parking space Monday, you're starting here at Universal Studios on Monday. Um, and the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take your science fiction horror script and turn it into a two-hour episode of the Six Million Dollar Man for the fall premiere. But you can't kill anybody because the show's on at eight o'clock. So take out all your deaths, you know. So my first, so that's my first week in Hollywood. Not quite a week. And uh, I'm one of the few people actually sold by spec script, although I actually had to great, greatly uh, adulterate it uh, 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 and, and, and uh, valorize it like, because uh, it could be gruesome. That's, a hell, of, that's think, a hell of a first week for when you, uh, you first arrive. You know, it also actually rarely got, I, I, and again, the following week I was, in, I was in Variety for the first time. Somebody wrote a piece saying, it doesn't just happen to actresses who get discovered in coffee shops. Uh, young Stephen Souza. Uh, so I, and I've been working pretty steadily ever since. Uh, the, the biggest hurdle for me was I got kind of pigeonholed right away with these bionic shows. Um, and, and so uh, I had an opportunity to break out of those with a lawyer show that was with, with Don Mankiewicz, the famous cat, the son of Mank, the movie Mank. Yeah. So I had some great mentors uh, early on. And to this day, I hope I uh, pass along some of the same things I learned from them uh, to other upcoming people. And then you move into screenplays with 48 hours. How did that, how, how does that shift happen, especially in a time where that wasn't really a, a common occurrence? Uh, you're right. There was kind of a firewall between uh, television and motion pictures. They were often different divisions at the studios and you would not see what you see now, like, you know, big movie stars working on television, but television is now streaming at the, all these um, categories and pigeonholes are, are, don't exist now what they did then. Uh, what happened was um, after I worked my way up the food chain uh, at Universal Studios, I started out as a story editor. Uh, and I think I said this before in, in television, uh, at that time and to this day, uh, if you're a competent writer, you quickly become a producer uh, and uh, you may not know the first thing at all about filmmaking, uh, about the production, and you're supervising other writers, but sometimes you do know about filmmaking. Like in my case, um, maybe the first week I was working at the uh, Bionic shows, uh, they said, we're going to go to dailies. Uh, so we're looking at footage of um, the, the currently filming episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, so... Um, I'm sitting there and they're running the footage and Harv Bennett, who was the executive producer at the time, uh, said, and it was a typical $6 million episode, he has to protect some beautiful girl from usually communists, but once in a while, just villains. Uh, and uh, there was a scene where, you know, put the slate action, scene 53, take two. Um, and uh, Lee Major says, you'll be safe in this hotel room. I'll come back and get you later. Don't answer the door unless I knock three times, whatever. Um, so Harv says, uh, do we have a single of Lee Majors, um, at the door before he goes out? 
who does he where he smiles or something do we have a single of him when she says be careful or whatever and um the um film editor says no and Horace says well tell them today we got to go back to that set and get uh, uh, uh get a shot of him like that he acknowledges she says be careful and i said you know i was watching last week's episode and i'm pretty sure he was wearing that same jacket <laughs> And he was not in a hotel room, but he was in an apartment. But it was a pretty tight shot. You probably could believe he's in the hotel room. And just if you take that shot and flop it left to right, so he's looking in the correct direction. And as I'm saying this, uh, one of the producers, the producer I met from the agent, not the executive producer, but yep. the guy, he said, he's kicking me. And I go, why is he kicking me? And then there's a silence. And I realize no one is supposed to speak in dailies unless spoken to some kind of unwritten rule. <laughs> So there's a long silence, uh, and Harv Bennett says, um, uh, I don't think Steve uh, understands the protocol here, but uh, and he, he says, Dave, and he says, yeah, he says, son of a bitch, Harvey's right. So he says, oh, okay, Steve is allowed to talk in daily. So I go, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> so uh, uh, I was working on a show called The Gemini Man at that time. It was like The Invisible Man. And it got canceled early. We were supposed to do 13 episodes. They canceled us after eight. So um, everyone is immediately typing their resume and looking for other jobs. Um, I had a contract, you know, to work for the, for like yeah. how many weeks it was. Uh, and um, somebody says, well, who's going to do post-production? And someone, and Hart Bennett says, well, Steve's pretty good in post. Let him do it. So if I'd known better, I'd only been in Hollywood. I, was barely, I, think, I, I think I was here like six, seven months. I would have had my agent call up and you got to renegotiate my contract. I'm like in charge of production now, even though we're not filming. So I ended up finishing the last four episodes by putting in the music because I knew how to do it. Yeah. The music, sound effect. So what happened at that time was people noticed that I knew something beyond the writing. So I was one of these people that my I got became like, I'm a story editor. Then I was an executive script consultant. You keep changing the title. Uh, and then I was supervising producer on V and finally executive producer in, uh, on um, uh, Knight Rider. But I actually understood some of the other crafts and things. Sure. So my contract uh, was up for renewal. This was, I guess, after five years. And at the time I was renegotiating my contract at Universal, um, Paramount contacted my, my agent and said, listen, we're watching the work he's doing. Uh, bring him over here. We will give you we will equal or better whatever Universal's offering him. And over here, we'll get him in the feature business. There is no firewall between features and television here. So I went over to Paramount, originally to do television. Sure. And I wrote two pilots for them that right away were were, were picked up. Uh, one was The Renegades. I think I said this to you in the last conversation. Or no, no, no. All right. All right. So one was The Renegades, which was like 21 Jump Street only probably years before 21 Jump Street, uh, undercover cops in high school. And only they actually were very young. And then the other one was called The Powers of Matthew Starr, which was like Smallville before Smallville, right. like an alien kid on Earth. Um, and so this put me on the radar, I guess, of the top executives at Paramount. Um, and this the Renegades was for uh, Larry Gordon, the famous producer, yep. who I later did Die Hard, Commando, all the other movies with. And... Uh, he was producing a movie that was about to go 48 hours and the one of the one of the writers on it was had also been our director on the renegades so there was this like you know 
configuration of people all knowing each other. Um, and uh, and what I had done on the Renegades was a strange situation where um, Aaron Spelling and had uh, and Larry Gordon had uh, pitched this show to the networks. And this was the time when when Aaron Spelling was the king of television. Yes. He had like 85 shows on the air. He had like Heart to Heart and he had uh, um, um, Charlie's Angels. And I can't even remember how many. So uh, basically... They went and said, here's the show. Here's the series. High school undercover. He said, fine, you're on the air. Uh, it's you, Aaron. We're, we're going we're to write the, write the series 13 episodes. You know, we want it for September. So they put the pilot script into the works. And Aaron, and because it was like so quick, he had a guy who was working on one of his other shows write the pilot. And the guy was stretched too thin. And the pilot came in and they go, you know, we can't use this. Not only that, he's recycling the plot from one of the episodes of Charlie's Angels. The audience is going <laughs> to notice it, you know. Um, so I ended up rewriting the Renegade script. Uh, it, it was so insane. Uh, I, I, I just, I probably just finished the, the work on the other pilot. And uh, Larry Gordon sent me the script for the Renegades. It's a two-hour movie pilot. And uh, it says, read the script. And I want you to write a three-page scene involving these characters because we have to we have to show the network some film because we're officially starting this television series so i go wait a minute you're officially starting this television series you have a script why don't you just start reading the script because we can't show the script to them as soon as you read the script you'll see why so i go okay all right yeah it's kind of a mess all right so um he, he said what what should i write he says just write a scene like pretend it's the end of an episode you know a show ends and they go you wrapped it up well, I guess we put those people, all right, well, good job, everybody. And then freeze frame, you know, like they would make fun of in comedy something. So just yeah. write, the, write the last scene of an imaginary episode involving these characters. Uh, and, and can we have it by, you know, by lunchtime? I go, well, yeah, three pages. I mean, come on, sure. You know, I don't have to think of the characters. All right. uh, so I write that. I get it over, over get, you know, have a, my, my secretary take it over. To them they all right great um go we're sending this to the print shop um now write a character description of each of the characters like like what each character's like a little paragraph yeah and take it over to casting i go why he says because they're casting this right now <laughs> and they need they need it so this is all in one day right they said read the script write a three-page scene take it to the print shop then write descriptions of the characters and take the walk it over to casting. They're going to Xerox it there. So I go over to casting. There's actors already there to read for these parts, which haven't been created yet. Essentially, no, no. no. They, 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 what happened was they they had given a description out originally uh, that was like based on the original script, but they felt now that it, it, it had changed. So I, I go, why the rush? And the director meets me there. He says, because we're filming the scene tomorrow. You know what? So. The next day, literally the next day, they go on the back lot to some place on the back lot that looks like it could be like a, an alley. And they film this scene where, they, where we solve that case and they meet their cop handler. And they send it, this is like a Friday. So they send that to the network. This is, a, I think it was a Thursday, towards the end of the week. They send it to the network and the network says, this is great, um, but uh, you know, please send us the whole script. And they say, well, we're, it's, it's in revisions, you know, but we'll keep you up to speed. So the following week, they start filming this two-hour pilot, but I'm rewriting it 
as we're filming it, and as you know, you film a motion picture usually out of order. Yeah. Based on the efficiency, like all the scenes in the police station, you film at once rather than, you know, leave the police station, go to the bank robbery, then go to a deli where the cops discuss. No, you do it. So I'm rewriting this movie every day out of order. <laughs> and the actors are coming up to me and saying, why, why, why am I angry at this other character? And I go, um, you'll know in a couple of days. <laughs> I don't want to say I haven't figured it out. So this was such a, you know, crazed, you know, racing against the clock situation. Uh, and we pulled it off and the series got ordered that the same team of people were doing about to do 48 hours. So they sent me the script for 48 hours. And so we said, this movie is starting really soon. It's not starting next week. It won't be as high pressure as the Renegades, but, you know, come up with, you know, same kind of ideas of, you know, find comedy relief, uh, fresh ways to do action. And so read it over the weekend, coming for a meeting. So for a while, there was a rumor that I rewrote this script in 48 hours, which is genuinely <laughs> possible. What I did was between Friday and Monday, I came into a meeting and I said, okay, the script is great. You know, it looks terrific. Here's what I would do. So I don't realize it, that one of the people in the room is Water Hill, the director. Right, yes. So, so I, I'm not like dumping on this. I'm saying, I think that's so why I said like, uh, uh, so at one point I said, look, this scene where they're trying to find the money that was missing from this drug deal and nobody knows where it is and finally figure out it's in a safety deposit box at a bank. So I said, look, you know, this is really, I've seen this scene a million times. The money in a safe deposit box, you send somebody the key. I mean, that was done with the Maltese Falcon, where, where's the Falcon? And I named two or three other examples. It's really kind of like kind of worrying and overdone. It's really a cliche. We could freshen that up. And then finally, a voice in the back room says, when I do it, it's not a cliche. It's an archetype. <laughs> and I go, what? Oh, but we see, this is Walter Hill. He's the director. And I go, oh, yeah. And then I realized that the script I'm reading is written by Walter Hill. He had rewritten the script of what, what, about his father's <laughs> way. So now I go on and I go, uh, okay, the scene here where uh, uh, to uh, test uh, Eddie Murphy, to met, to, they were already talking about getting Eddie Murphy, where uh, Nick Dolte's character, uh, uh, they, they want to go to a bar, and Eddie says, I'll take care of this. That, are you you can lose that, can't you? I'll, don't worry about it yet. <laughs> uh, okay, I have this thing, so I get up every, every 15 minutes and stretch, that's all. Just I'm going to get up in a second. Sitting is bad for you. And I, so uh, I just get up periodically. All right, so uh, uh, I said, you know, I think that that the way it is now where Eddie's character says, you can't talk to the brothers, I can. And he goes into a black bar. I said, I don't know what that proves. I think it'd be much better if you flip it, if Nick's character says, why don't you go in and talk to the suspect? And then when Eddie goes in, it's a redneck bar. Yeah. Right. And Larry Gordon says, who's from Mississippi, he was born in Mississippi. He says, oh yeah, with the Confederate flag on the wall and everything. And Walter says, and they're wearing and yeah, cowboy hats and, you know, and so Walter says, um, in San Francisco, a bar with everybody's wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots would be a gay bar. <laughs> and I go, yeah, well, we all know that because we live in California, but the audience doesn't know that. So finally, he says, um, uh, could you tell me a, a little bit about what movies you've done, Steve? Because I, you know, I, I don't really know your background. 
So I realized, like he said, movies. And I go, and at this point, we had Larry Gordon in the room, and um, um, it was, um, uh, I'm losing my mind here, but uh, the uh, there was no firewall between, there, there were television and feature executives, uh, both. So uh, I'm trying to think of later on, he went, he's still a major player in Hollywood. Uh, he went on to run Disney after, with Jeffrey Katzenberg is in the room. And uh, I forget, uh, and um, damn, I can't think of that. Anyway, just famous people. So uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg says, well, actually, Stephen hasn't written any motion pictures. He's one of our, uh, you know, one of the top television writers uh, on the lot. And Walter said, television writer? You want a television writer to rewrite me? And he says, no, look, you're, he's working for you. You're going to like, you know, tell him what to do. He's going to what we like his ideas. And Steve has a real knack, as you can tell just from these conversations in the room, that he's got a knack for comedy. And we, and we were talking about getting Murphy. And, you know, this, we, we, we want to make the script funny. There's no funny in the script yet. Um, uh, and and, and Katzenberg, to, to his, unfortunately, says, I mean, there's no reason, you know, we're hoping this movie with this teaming of Nick and Eddie, that it could be as work on so many, hit all the boxes and work as well as, uh, and he looks around the room and he points to a poster on the wall, which was for Stir Crazy, which is a movie with Gene Wilder and um, Richard Pryor, and yeah, Richard Pryor, and where where they're in chicken suits on the poster. So Walter says, "This is what you want to emulate," and he gets up and he walks out of the room, slams the door. He slams the door so hard that the poster like goes askew. <laughs> so I say, "Well, um, I guess I'm not." Um, doing this right i guess he doesn't he look you work for paramount pictures he works for paramount pictures you're doing this uh so uh, i ended up doing you know a rewrite of the script it's a great script to begin with um uh, to this day walter hill like you know is probably like right now complaining how i ruined this movie by making it funny i don't know uh it, it stands out from all those other movies they're all terrific it's like the only one that's kind of like funny and it was a huge, I mean, it was a massive hit. I mean, yeah, it was, it was. And uh, also, if you look at the sequel, I was not involved with the sequel. And, this, you know, I don't know if that's the only reason the sequel is so weak, but, you know, it may have been. I don't think, I think I wasn't involved in the sequel because, you know, it bothered Walter that the studio had me rewrite him over his, over his objections. In fact, um, Joel Silver told me later, and this is his story, you know, he's making himself a hero, but he said when he was on the set with Walter Hill, that Walter Hill kept trying to cut out all of the comedy, and he would say to Walter, Walter, you got to shoot this. Maybe you're right. It's hurting the movie. It's too funny. But after we do have a test screening, we can take out anything that you, th that you think is too funny or too silly that undermines the movie. But if we, if we don't have it, we don't have it. So needless to say, nothing was cut out after the first test screening. Which made Eddie Murphy a massive star as well, which... Yeah. What's funny about that, uh, both of the actors came to meet me. So uh, Nick comes to meet me. Uh, this is right before, this, I was just starting work the first week. And they said, you should meet the actors so you can sort of, I know you do this, in you, you're, you've always done this in television because they'd worked with me for a while. You know, listen to the actor's voice so you can like, you know, see how they sound because a well-written script, everyone should sound differently. Should not sound like you, the writer. They should have individual voices, yeah. which is something not every writer can, can get across. Um, so Nick comes in and he's looking, this is like 1982, but he's looking a lot like his mugshot from like 15 years later, you know, <laughs> he's, he's overweight, his hair's a mess, he's wearing like a beat up old shirt. 
and he says, uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'll lose the gut. The studio's hiring a, um, a trainer for me. I'm going to be in big shape. So don't be afraid to give me some like action to do. I'll, I'll be able to handle it. I go, okay. So then Eddie comes in and Eddie, he's so naive. Remember he's, he's just off of Saturday night live. I think he turned 20 years old while he was on set, 20 or 21. He was either 19 or 20, 20 when he was on that show. He just had his birthday. And he had, knows so little about the pecking order in Hollywood. He's come from New York, Saturday Night Live. He wore a suit and tie to meet me, <laughs> right? So uh, I could meet him and say, yeah. And uh, he, uh, and we had a nice conversation. Uh, and uh, uh, he said, you know, I've already been told I can't improv a lot. Uh, 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 but uh, you watch the show. I said, I'd watch the show. I will definitely, you know, find things to put in the script that like, that that worked for you so they asked me that how did the meetings go with the two guys and i said listen uh i would say you should not send nick to the gym right i, I want to work you said work with with the real personalities so nick was kind of like you know rough and sloppy and uh eddie was like all neat and trim and let's put let's put that in the script so that's why eddie is wearing a nice suit yeah Right, he says when he when they let him out of prison, they show he had all these nice clothes, and I had a running gag where when they're handcuffed together, people look at the two of them and they automatically assume Eddie's the cop yeah. and <laughs> is is the criminal. So this was again the feedback you know from the actors. So anyway, the movie was a a, a great success, um, and um, I thought that you know, who knows the next day maybe I'll have more feature offers, but actually nothing happened for almost a year. I think because it was a writer director and Walter was a writer on the movie too. His name is on it. You know, everybody assumes it's all from the director. You know, what happens yeah. usually when the movie does well, they give all the credit to the director. And when the movie tanks, they'll say, saddled with a poor script, the director does the best job he can, you know. So there's no so but finally, um, like almost a year later, the same people, Larry Gordon, Joel Silver, came back to me uh with commando. Yeah. Uh, and um what happened on that script was. Uh, uh, Barry Diller. This is this, this is now 20th Century Fox. The, the, these these guys had moved to 20th Century Fox uh, from Paramount. Larry Gordon and uh, his company. Um, so uh, Barry Diller had became the new head of, Par of Paramount uh, of, of of Fox, um, and Larry Gordon was a producer on the lot. And he he's there like one week. Uh, Diller and he says we don't have enough movies in the pipeline. So he said to Larry Gordon, I met Arnold Schwarzenegger at a party over the weekend, and he's nothing like Conan or the Terminator. He's charming, he's funny. Um, and uh, if you can find a part he could play and make a movie for $10 million, I will green light it immediately. But we got to start this movie like in like six weeks because right. there's no movies in the pipeline. We want it out for the fall and a writer's strike was coming. Like, and the writer's strike while writing was stopped. So we got to get this going fast. So Larry and his uh, Joel Silver and the other people on his team, uh, they go uh, into, I guess, the, the storeroom or the filing cabinet, and they look for any action script that could be done for a price. So they found like four scripts that had been abandoned. And we all read them over the weekend. Monday morning, everybody says the script called Commando is the one that is the most likely to be adaptable for Arnold and be able to make for $10 million. So, uh, uh, so, all right, great. Okay. This is like, like nine 30 in the morning. All right. We got a meeting set for Arnold, uh, one 30, his office in Venice, uh, go over and tell him what the picture is going to be. 
uh, Steve, you and Joel go, and the director, Mark Lester, and I go, wait a minute, why don't you give him the script to read? He says, we can't give him the script to read. You read it, obviously. Oh, yeah, you're right, yeah. I mean, for example, in the script, it was the same basic idea, but Arnold's, the character's wife and child, both, don't get kidnapped till page 48. The right. first 48 pages is like flashbacks showing what a great, a great soldier he is, and scenes where the bad guys approach him several times and say, we want you to, like, do this mission for us. And he says, sorry, you know, I'm retired. So right away, Arnold would just turn the table over. You know, he's not going to meet with them a second time. Plus, the character, this is a stretch, is uh, is an immigrant like Arnold. That's a plus. But he's an immigrant from Israel. He's a former Mossad agent. Right. So he said, oh, yeah, you're right. Probably telling Arnold the way to break out of the the, the, the box he's in is he should play a Jewish character. It might be too much of a too much of a stretch. So I said, but I don't know. He said, look, you, you, you got, you know, you got like you got four hours before you see him. You'll think of something. So I'm like, you know, in my office making notes and stuff. And then in the car, I'm still like thinking. So we go to his office and I pitch the movie I intend to write, not the script he's got, because I can't give him the script to read. Um, not only that, another example, the script, whoever wrote the script was either from maybe probably from New York, because in the scene where he realized he has to fight the villains, the character goes into a supermarket like Reese in Terminator and yeah. buys all kinds of all the shelf products to make weapons like in the, in the motel room. And I'm going, it's fuck California. You just walk into an army Navy store and like walk out with all, all the weapons you want. You know, it, it's harder now, but that's the way it was then. Um, so uh, I pitched the movie to Arnold. And at one point as I'm telling how it's going to go, I say, and then you say, remember Sully when I told you I would kill you last, I lied. So he gives me a look like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't have done my cocktail impression of Arnold. Um, uh, but then I said, Arnold, I do all the greats. Let me do Cary Grant for you now. <laughs> so anyway, so he laughed. We, I finished that whole thing. And he sits there for a second. And he says, I like this picture. I'm not a robot from the future, a caveman from the past. I'm a person from now with a family. I'm very enclosed. It's a part John Vane could do. I do this picture. So now we get back in the car. And this is like, I guess, 1985. So uh, uh, Joel had like the early version of a car phone. Uh, which at that time there was no cell service or anything. It connects to the it connects to the marine operator. So like you call the same as if you're a boat. Yeah. So so so, so you dial San Pedro Marine Operator. What is your emergency? Are you thinking? No, no. We're in a car. Can you connect us to this number? It's a landline. So we call up. It says went great. Arnold's on board. All right, get back here right away. We're all waiting for you. And I go. What are, we're all waiting for you. So I go back to Larry's office. He's got the head of physical production there. Uh, who's you know, you know, and also a stenographer, and he says, "Tell us exactly what you told Arnold, but tell us the way you would shorthand an episode when we do television episodes, which I had done many times for them." So I go, "Okay, the opening scene is three mysterious murders. It could be on the back lot, or it could be in the real world. It's three to five pages. Then we have three pages: Arnold and his daughter, like in retirement." you know, doing family stuff. It was, Arnold was very important, Arnold. So like, you know, like they're making breakfast, they're at the petting zoo, you know, yeah. they're fishing, you know, just, you know, and this is the title sequence. Then we have a three-page scene where General Kirby comes and lands an helicopter, warns him as everyone's being killed. Uh, Kirby leaves. And then we have, what, five to seven pages where the bad guys come, a whole like fight, fight. So I do this all through the whole movie. When I get done telling the whole story, uh, Larry says to the stenographer, how many pages is that? 
And she goes, 105 pages. Larry says, perfect. Steve, start writing that script. Do not change any of the sets or locations because we're going to start building the sets tomorrow. That's why I had to say what the sets were. Uh, Sorry, so I go start to write the script and I'm trying to knock it out as fast as possible. I think just in a matter of, you know, less than a month. Um, as it got into the crunch, I said, listen, I'm going to start writing it at home. There's too many distractions here at the office. And I lose like, you know, an hour and a half going and coming to the studio every day. So, uh, so when I'm done, uh, I'll send the pages in every day. You said there's, this is, uh, people were just beginning to get fax machines. So I said, I'll, I'll fax the pages in every day. So you can know what the sets are and stuff like that. And, uh, we'll definitely be done by, by May 4th or May 5th, May 4th or May 5th, the strike started. So the day the writer's strike starts, all writing in Hollywood has to stop at five o'clock. Right. And you have to have all the scripts that are not made yet, all the movies that are not made yet, all the scripts have to be at the Writers Guild with a stamp, they're in by five o'clock. So I'm facing the clock, and just like when you're in school, you know, it's always the last minute kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> Finally, I'm, I'm doing, the, and they're, they're also have given me notes on the pages I've sent the previous couple of weeks. So I'm making the last minute changes. And I say, listen, these fax machines are so slow. Send a messenger to my house who will then take the script to the Writers Guild office, uh, which is about a half an hour from my house. So the writer, the, the guy from, the, from the, the messenger comes to my house, I guess, like around two o'clock in the afternoon. And I say, um, yeah, I'm, I'm still working on it. Why don't you, you know, have a cup of coffee, watch TV or something? And I'm working and working. Finally, it's like 3.30. And I'm done. So I go, fine, great. 3.30, got the script's got to be there at 5 o'clock. I press print. Now, then I realize, wait a minute. I mean, I'm projecting now. I didn't have this exact thought. I'd have to be a time traveler. <laughs> but I go, wait a minute. It's 1985. My printer is printing the first page. I remember it well, yeah. I have a dot matrix printer, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking at the clock. So after three, after like three pages came out, I knew how long it took to print a page. And I go, this script is going to be done around 545. <laughs> Uh-oh. So it's still printing out. And the guy says, should I be going soon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a minute. It's almost done. Now I'm panicking now. So I call the Writers Guild and I get the script registration office. And I said, listen, can I register a script like electronically do you have a bulletin board this is very early go a bulletin board what's a bulletin board (laughs) this is when only like you know only early early internet yeah yeah yeah. i mean the internet is only is only for like lockheed you know what i mean there's like bulletin boards and stuff there's no email i don't think email email is probably not even caught on yet you know um they go what are you talking about uh i said listen give me uh um give me accounting so give me the accounting department I said, you're the county department. You use computers all the time, right? Computer files have a date and time on them. Of course they do. Great. So I managed to get them to get the, stri- the strike office, the accounting department, and the legal department on the phone at once. Meanwhile, the printer's going, <laughs> and I said, listen, I have to get the script registered. Can I send you a floppy disk instead of printed up pages? because the floppy disk has the date and time. Isn't that right? And, and the, the, the accounting department says, yes, absolutely, the floppy disk would have a date and time on it. And the legal department says, well, in that case, you know, what's the difference, whether it's on paper or, uh, you know, you, we were trying to register when you stopped writing. All right, okay, fine. 
So now I just made a copy of the script on a floppy disk, the five and a, five and a quarter inch floppy, you know. Yeah. You know, and uh, with floppy disks used to be floppy disks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I give it to the messenger and he takes over the writer's guild and he gets there like five minutes before they close. So this was the first time anybody registered electronically, which is now, of course, like almost the standard. And it was Commando of all films. Yeah, yeah it was, yes, it, it, it was Commando. Now, it, get, it gets crazier, too. You talk about how quickly this movie to get, came together. Um, we're, we're racing the clock. There's a writer's guild strike. It's a very low budget movie. Uh, it ended up going a little bit over budget. I think it ended up being like around 12 million instead of 10. But it's thrown together so ad hoc. They start filming the movie, and I get a phone call from a. Oh, did you notice my cup here? I thought this for your benefit, see. <laughs> I noticed that logo, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Joel Silver calls me up and says, Listen, uh, can we shoot a couple of scenes of the movie at your house? And I go, Wait, what? They're like, is this a student film? He says, No, listen, you know the opening the scene where they kill the guy taking out his garbage? Yeah. Right. For that scene to work, the, the 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 what do you call them? In, call them in, in the in the UK the bin the, the bin, bin man yes the bin man the bin man to make an escape in that truck. The only way you can make a quick escape if you kill somebody is do is you can't do a K turn, right? Park you know like the, like the, every, all the neighbors come out, and and I remember you live at the end of a cul de sac with a long driveway. I go yeah that's the inspiration for the scene. I'm the guy that always forgets to take the trash out <laughs> until I hear the truck coming. He says, okay, you're in a cul-de-sac. That works for the director. He wants to do the scene where they shoot and make their quick escape and make a dramatic entrance, dramatic exit. And that'll work there. I said, all right, okay, fine. And also we want to do the Vietnam flashback at your house. I go, what? He said, I remember you have a very tropical backyard. And there was a sequence I'd written in the script when, Ar when they tell Arnold his friends were dead uh, before the bad guys arrived, after Kirby warns him, he went and looked at some photographs he had, and we were doing like a Ken Burns kind of thing where he looks at the photographs, right? Yeah. And it's him with his guys in Vietnam. Uh, so it would have been just black and white uh, photographs with maybe a little bit of movement, you know, like you know, the, the camera moved, that kind of thing, like, like the documentaries. And we'll do that too. All right, great. Uh, and of course, we, now we have to sign a new contract with you, you let us film at your house which was like a, like a, a, mod, a fee for like renting my house. I, all right, okay. So now they come to my house, they film the whole the murder scene and we do the black and white photographs in Vietnam. Now, as it turned out, after a day or two of filming, they replaced the guy playing Bennett. People have wondered why Bennett looks so out of shape because yes. like they called him up and said, we want you on this movie, get on an airplane. So he did not have time to get into shape. You know, you have, they expected Wes from the Road Warrior and it was, you know, <laughs> It was uh, Wes had Wes had 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 waxed, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and not Wayne. Um, so uh, the sequence of black and white photographs were unusable. But I saw the black and white photograph of me with the actors with the wrong Bennett. If you have a website, I'll give you the picture. Yes, uh, please, Dale. Dale. Remind remind me to remind me. To, uh, so uh, now by this time, you know, uh, strangest thing by this time. Um, I wrote the entire script. I was the only screenwriter credited with the screenplay. Um, so there was no question about, you know, where the fun came from and where the, the, the stunts and action. So it was really what really more than 48 hours really kicked off my career and led to everything else. I went right from this to the running man. Yeah. I had a relationship with Arnold. And that was another situation where they said, don't even read the book because in the book, the character is like tubercular 
and uh, is, is skeletal and tubercular because he's dying. It, 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 uh, his wife is a hooker trying to get money to like get medicine for the little girl who's dying. And the, there's a worldwide depression and Arnold can't get work, which yeah. is why he goes on the game show to win money. And I'm going like, you, you tell me Arnold can't get work. I mean, he could get a job delivering pianos door to door, even during a depression, like, you know, so it had to, so I said, look, instead of volunteering to go on the game show, it should be like the Roman arena, like condemned prisoners. Yeah. So this became what the movie came. Another thing I said, Stephen King's a wonderful writer. What was funny is when they bought the script, this was at, this was at uh, the, uh, they did, they, they, the, one of, one of the producers was a wannabe producer, just got into the movie business. He'd made his fortune, I think in, um, I think he did the sports reels when the, uh, kind of uh, sports wheelchairs came in, you know, yeah. instead of the old school, the one, I think that was his business. He made a lot of money. He said, I want to be in the movie business. So he was in an airport and he sees this book, The Running Man, I'll read it on the plane. Oh, I'm going to option this book and I'll get a movie made out of it. So he optioned the book, he took it to a studio. And when they went to buy it, they couldn't believe how expensive it was. This unknown writer, Richard Bachman, they did not realize <laughs> until then that it was Stephen, Stephen King. King. Yeah. So Stephen King, the wonderful writer, but he's writing this book which has a great deal in it about television business and television production and a game show. And his idea of a game show, he's writing this book, I guess, in the 70s, it must have been, um, is like in a time warp. Um, there was, he has, uh, the way it works is um, they bring out the person who's going to run and a girl comes out with a box, like, like a cigarette girl, with envelopes. You pick an envelope and the envelope tells you how much time you have to run before they start chasing you. And the game show was like a, a 1950s game show. And this time I'm saying, look, we have Wheel of Fortune. You have all the others, bells and whistles and neon. And so that's why I made the game show an exaggeration of where game shows were going now. Like, you know, like The Price is Right. You know, the yeah. audience comes up and the internet, all that stuff. None of that was, was in the book. It was like a, an archaic view of what a game show would be. Um, and another problem with it was he had the host of the game show and he had a, a, a producer and the producer was the bad guy and the game show was a jerk, the host. And I said, in reality, any game show that's on the air more than one year, the host becomes a producer because they have the leverage. So let's combine these into one character we, who will be both funny and uh, disturbingly evil. It's a great yeah. combination. Um, so this is how we got to um, uh, Richard, you know, who, yeah. who had done- he's, he's brilliant in the film, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. He, he, he won the uh, uh, Saturn Award for, uh, uh, you know, best best performance in, in, yeah. in, in, in a motion picture. It's like the Oscars of science fiction and fantasy. Um, and um, uh, another problem with the, again, the way it was written, and again, he's writing in like 1979 or 1980, I guess, about the amazing future of 2020. I think it was 20, uh, I think it was supposed to be 20, 2019, I think, the movie's supposed to take place. Yeah. The movie starts in 2017, and then it skips two years later, I think. I have, to re I have to watch it again. I don't know. Uh, so uh, in, in the thing there, it says you have to be stay alive and run for a month. A month. So it's right. like, and uh, again, he's trying to imagine what the future's like, but didn't quite get it right. So they give each person, each runner, a video camera and some st stamped pre-addressed envelopes. <laughs> and every day they have to record themselves saying, well, I've been on the run for three days. You still haven't caught me. Ha, ha, ha. And then mail it back. 
Now, how like the post office is not going to like show where you're hiding, I don't know. <laughs> On top of that, the hunters, they call the hunters, uh, and they changed the name hunters to stalkers for the movie because there was a TV show called Hunter about a tough cop. Yep. Right. So we had to change the stalkers. The, they are anonymous people. So you're walking along, you think you've escaped, and a meter maid kills you. So I go, how can you fall in hate with the bad guys if they're anonymous? Right. Are we going to show a bad guy putting on disguise? You know, like, uh, and they keep talking about the most feared hunter, but he never shows up until he shows up. So I said, as long as we're going with the Roman arena as its inspiration, let's go with wrestling and make these hunters characters and forget the idea it's a one month show and you're sending videotapes back. It's a preposterous. It should be a show that's on, maybe it's like uh, a show that's on, you know, once a month. Yeah. And, pull together, and it's a three hour broadcast it's like a big special thing that's more plausible so that's how and again it wasn't like i said oh i have to like change stephen king my name is stephen i should be able to change anything i want no i, I just figured i'm like we got arnold schwarzenegger it's got to fit him like a suit the game show it has to have some resemblance to what the audience expects game shows are like uh and this is how the movie like evolved to to what you saw and then the, the tv show in the film became what tv shows because yes. yeah uh, this is before reality television yeah uh, I, i've also seen articles when when um when trump was elected a lot of people said whoa this is just like we have a, a former reality show person is now the isn't this a lot like the running man there were articles all over the world in, in magazines and newspapers uh vice you know the network yeah did, did a 15-minute documentary about how it had become reality. I can send you a link to that. It's still up online. Yeah. Remember to ask you for that. Um, and I'd say, look, and they talked about all the things, but in addition to Trump, all the things that the movie predicted right, like the internet, uh, shopping online, you know, mm -hmm. uh, voice controlled houses, all these things that not, I mean, you know, I mean, I was always reading blogs or, you know, technology. It wasn't like somehow I had, I, somehow I imagined it. I, I saw things that were on the horizon, but they all were, went into this script for the first time. Um, so, uh, you know, it kind of predicted what came true, uh, to a great deal. And then again, for the same, for, uh, this was different producers, this is uh, here, but then I went back to, to Larry and Joel and we did Die Hard, which changed everything drastically. Yes. Um, and, and, uh, and Die Hard too. So I, people talk a great, about Die Hard as a great action film and it is, but Die Hard too, I, I put it kind of pretty much all up there as a, as a sequel that works almost just as well as the original? Uh, well, I, I, I agree. Uh, I, I feel that the all the subsequent sequels really were called Die Hard, but they were generic action movies. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what, made, what, what, made, what, what made the first two work, and also, strangely enough, all of the copies of Die Hard did a better job than Die Hard 3, 4, 5, and 6, and six, wherever we are, 6, um, is it's, a, it's the Aristotelian unity of time, place, and action. Yep. They take place in a very brief time period. They take place in an isolated location. And John McClane is someone that neither the hero, the, the authorities, or the villains want there. They don't like him at all. So the first movie, he's trapped in the building. He, he's, he, he's trapped not just in the building, but between the skill and carbides of the authorities and the villains. The second movie, it's a bigger canvas. He's trapped in an airport. Same thing, nobody wants him there. The third movie, he goes all over New York yeah. and he has a partner, right? The fourth movie, he's all over the East Coast, you know, Washington to New York and stuff. 
the third the, no, the third movie even goes to Canada at the end. Yeah. They're all over New York City driving over. And the police are helping him. He has a partner and the police are helping him. The next picture after that, he's hooked up with uh, uh, a, 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 a young guy. Yeah, a hacker with, guy or something, isn't he? Right, and the CIA tries to help him. And then the next movie, he went to Russia. And except for the first two movies, which take place in basically a 12-hour span, like yeah. Dust the Dawn, these next movies take place over days and even weeks. Uh, so I think what made Die Hard work was copied better by the imitation Die Hards than the subsequent sequels. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, everybody talks about how great Die Hard 3 is. And I think, no, the, the first two, you know, no. it's, it's there's a claustrophobia to, to the setting, yeah. Yeah. you know, he can't escape from. And that's what sort of gives it that, well, Die Hard, you know, the, yeah. which became the, the byword. And you, you do Die Hard with Joel Silver again and Bruce Willis. And then there's Hudson Hawk. And I have to say, Hudson Hawk's one of my favorite films. I know. I hear that from a lot of people. I do. Yeah. I do. I mean, that's sort of known for, uh, I'll say, a, an interesting production. What was it like from, from your perspective? Because it was a passion project for Bruce Willis, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was a passion project for Bruce Willis. He had the idea that he wanted to be a uh, cat burglar. And if you see the movie, he has a story credit on it. Uh, but the original concept was kind of trapped in the Cold War. Uh, the CIA recruited him to go steal something in Russia and... Uh, uh, that was kind of over at the time. You know, the Berlin Wall had already uh, just just fallen down. Um, but because uh, and Bruce basically hired, he basically got a deal with Tri with Columbia to work to make a movie or maybe a couple of movies. And he said, "What do you want to do?" He said, "I want to work with Joel Silver and I want to work with Stephen D'Souza again." So he brought us into the project. He hired us. Um, so the script I wrote was um, greatly inspired by. Uh, the Hitchcock movie, uh, To Catch a Thief. One of my favorites as well, yes. Okay, it was, it was very much like that. And it was a pretty straightforward, it was, a, it was again, what I do was an action movie with a lot of comedy, more comedy than, say, than, than, than uh, 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 Die Hard, because yeah. the character was not a policeman, the character was a fast-talking, uh, glib cat burglar. It was, uh, you know, it was more like the part, the character Bruce had played on... Uh, on Moonlighting. Now, when I did the first draft, uh, we were talking about the villain being um, the fellow who was in, in Lethal Weapon 2. Uh, uh, what's that actor? The villain? Joss Ackland. Joss Ackland. That's yep. who we're talking about being, being the villain. Uh, and then after I turned that in, um, the director said, you know, what if we had a woman for a villain? Uh, and I rewrote it for Audrey Hepburn to be the villain. They actually right. wanted to get Audrey Hepburn to be the villain. Um, and then when the movie was about to start i had finished I, I had finished the script and i was supposed to do one more polish and i had another movie at another studio i don't know whether it was the flintstones or something that i had to get on a certain time so at this point um the, our director had uh, done heathers he was famous for heathers yeah and he worked with the writer on heathers um and he said look that's okay you know uh you know i was i wanted to uh uh, bring in a writer of work before they do the policy, you're free to go. All right, okay. But then what happened when they went over to Italy, uh, Bruce, who was a producer on this movie, exerted more and more of a influence on the script every day, changing it. So, you know, I'm, you know, off, um, you know, working on another picture and I get a phone call from an executive at Columbia who said, listen, how would you like a free trip to, uh, for you and your wife to go to Italy? And I go, why? He says, well, 
And what's going on over there is every single day, Bruce is rewriting the script. And they brought in the Heathers guy to like, you know, make it a little crazier. Uh, he's quit because Bruce is telling him to do stuff that's too crazy for him. So now there's nobody writing the script except Bruce Willis. He's rewriting it every day. Uh, and we're looking at the dailies and we're getting really nervous. And we know Bruce selected you to work on the movie originally. You have a relationship with him. Uh, we are out of money. We cannot pay you, but we'll put you up in Italy for the rest of the duration. You, you and your wife go first class, whatever. Fine. So I go over there and uh, I get there late at night and uh, I go to Chinachita, the studio, and Joel Silver meets me before I even go to the soundstage and says, listen, Bruce hired you and he hired me. It's not our job to tell him to stop being creative and to take the pencil out of his hand and break it. It's improper in a way he hired us and it's like really bad politics right and the studio executive is flying over here he's on a plane right now he's going to read bruce the riot act and then you'll be free to put the script back to what you had and we may even have to do some reshoots because some of it has gotten too wacky so when you go in don't say you're here to like rewrite him just say you and your wife are traveling through Europe, and I invited you to come by, and you're going to be here in Rome for a while. That's the cover story. Okay. So, fine. So, the studio executive comes in on Monday, late. He came in early, but somehow he couldn't get himself out to the studio first thing in the morning, which is already sucks. You know, like he's, he, came in on, he came in on a Saturday. He said 24 hours to recover. Why isn't he here first thing? So, he comes in very late in the afternoon, and says, we're going to talk to Bruce. He says, yeah, what are you filming today? And, and what was filming there was a robbery sequence where Bruce uses a skateboard to, to go by uh, yeah. the guards, which I copied from an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man I did where it was roller skates. We, <laughs> we had an episode of Six Million Dollar Man where they said, we want to do a roller derby thing. So uh, Steve Austin has to infiltrate a roller derby team because something sus was going on. And it turned out they were doing a robbery on roller skates and they would crouch down and it was same exact gag, only, you know, skateboards. Were, yeah. So I'll, I'll recycle it. All right. So uh, he says, well, nobody's talking. This sequence would be exactly the same. Uh, you know, whether or not, you know, let's, we'll, we'll try the conversation tomorrow. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the studio executive never comes and confronts Bruce. Where, where uh, is he? Is he just at his hotel or is he on set? Or? We don't even hotel. He said, I got tied up calling. So the third day, he says, he said, I was on the phone all day with the studio. And I said, you know, I said, what is this guy doing? I said, Joel, he's on the phone. Look at the time difference. Who at the studio is talking to him? <laughs> like, like at three in the morning. And so like the fourth day he was there, suddenly there's an emergency. He has to go back to Hollywood. So no one ever says to Bruce, you got to stop rewriting the script. And also stop like redirecting the other actors, which is now uh, where it's become. So I go, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, well, I don't know, just take a road trip. So we were there for like three weeks in Rome. We took a road trip, explored the rest of the country, went with the company uh, up to uh, Rimini, which is where the castle scene was. Yeah. Again, every day hoping that someone is going to say something. So we knew at that time that the movie was going to be uh, a mess. Uh, and uh, it, it became more problematic in that the studio um, sold the movie like it was a diehard movie. It did not sell the movie as a comedy. 
So the audience like would go in and was like whiplash. This is not what I expected. Also, the script became so incomprehensible because of ad libs that the MacGuffin, to use the Hitchcockian term, yeah. the MacGuffin of the movie was that Da Vinci had discovered how to turn lead into gold. Yeah. That was the MacGuffin of the movie. But the movie became so incomprehensible that they ended up adding a voiceover. In 1587, Leonardo da Vinci discovered how to like make lead into gold, right? So it's said up front. Yeah, because you know, no one ever actually explains that's what the point of it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. So, so already, so, so there's nothing, no mystery to pull you, you know, pull you through the movie. Uh, so this had a domino effect on my next picture in a way. I don't know if my next picture, I, I'm trying to, I'm lost count anymore, but anyway, um, when we did the next movie, I don't know if my next film, but the next film I did with Joel Silver was Ricochet. Yep. With Denzel Washington. And basically at, at the night that Denzel Washington won the Academy Award, at a, at a party, after party, Joel Silver said, I want to put you in an action movie. Every big star should be in an action movie. Uh, so we do Ricochet uh, and uh, the movie's wrapped and we have a meeting about promotion and publicity. And I've I'm more, more than most writers, I'm involved in a lot of these things, like which poster do you like? You know, like, because of having come up in television, where as an executive producer, you are involved in all these things. What should the commercials be? What should the network do? Uh, you know, I, I, I know not- You've got for the material, yeah. yeah but I know, I know not to cross the lines. I don't start telling the actors what to do if I'm on the set, if I'm not the director, but all right, so I'm involved. So there's a meeting and the publicity people come in and say, uh, Joel, we're thinking with these two, like, Academy Award-winning actors uh, who both started on the Broadway stage, John Lithgow yeah. and Denzel Washington, we think the press junket should be in New York, not in Los Angeles. And we have a couple of ideas for where we could do it. And Joel says, there's not going to be a press junket. When they go, what? I'm not buying those assholes a drink or feeding them canapes after the way they pissed all over Hudson Hawk. Every reviewer got dumped on that, so screw them. And I say, Joel, you know, we both knew that we were going to get those reviews on Hudson Hawk. That was not a surprise. It doesn't matter. They never... And now the, the women, the, the press junket, Joel, you don't understand. If you do not have a press junket and press previews for a movie with stars of this caliber, they will immediately assume the movie is a turkey, it's a dog, and we are hiding something. The reviews you got that upset you for Hudson Hawk, you're guaranteeing you will get worse reviews on this movie by not having press screenings. Ah, to hell with that. Quality is quality, they'll know. So, of course, that's exactly what happened. Every reviewer said, when a movie with stars like this is not shown, yeah. you know, so... Uh, the day after the movie opened out, this is by now the internet has been invented. This is 1991. I'm going on the internet. I looked every city I could, Chicago, Detroit. I looked up every newspaper I could find. Every major newspaper had exactly the same review. When they don't show, when there's no sneak previews, you know what's going on. Yeah. You know, hamming it up. Every the only one that liked it was, uh, I think Kevin Thomas in in the L.A. Times, who says, "How could they be so stupid not to show this?" You know. They said at the two actors at the top of their game, suspend, you know, so that was the only one. Now, years later, this movie has acquired a totally different coverage. Yeah. You buy these books like the best movies on, on, on home video on these reviews ago, the underrated 
Ricochet. I go, you're underrated by you, asshole. I remember the review you wrote <laughs> back then. And uh, the, the, this movie is the, 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 this movie is now entire chapters yeah. in in books about motion pictures in the nineties. Yeah, like um, uh, the 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 poet laureate that read the poem when Obama was uh, in, in was inaugurated. Uh, I forget it. Susan, no, not Susan Alexander. Susan Alexander is this, is the wife of Citizen Kane. I forget her name. Her last name is Alexander. She wrote a review of the movie. The, the, the poet laureate, uh, and uh, it, it's staggering the reviews it gets now. Yeah. In, in, in these books about then but then like we he just by not having a press junket uh we were just asking for it and that's and it was sort of probably denzel washington's first action film as well kind of which he's yes. done yeah you know so that was the, the crossover movie for him it was it was well every actor secretly wants to run around and shoot guns you know yeah <laughs> and, and every actress the first note the first note an actress always gives you this is my is can i have a boy's name I don't know why. If you start paying attention to movies, you will notice more often than not, the leading lady will have a name like Ricky, you know, or Stevie, or Bobby. <laughs> I'm going to have to look at that now and see if it's a. Pay, pay attention to that. For some reason, they, 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 they that the first could we change my name? I don't want to be a Susan. And is that the first thing you do then? You go through the script and just yeah, who cares? You know, copy her you know? yeah, yeah. No, then, look, no, you're playing Martha Washington. We can't change her name. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then as the, the, the 90s roll on, um, Street Fighter, I mean, which is another film that had become a cult classic. Uh, yeah, it's called on. It's become a cult classic. That was, uh, uh, that was a, uh, another one of these crazy situations that came together quickly. Now, what you have to realize is that after, like, I guess, the first couple of Die Hard movies, uh, I started getting a lot of offers uh, to do pictures, and I was in a position to negotiate, well, I want to direct this movie. And I was able to make a lot of number of deals where I was going to direct uh, uh, the picture. Because uh, I had started out as director. I had directed, you know, my my my, my stoner movie. Yes. Um, and uh, in television, you know, once I was an executive producer, I would routinely, when I make my contract, I'd say, I want to direct a couple episodes this season. Fine, fine, fine. But what would happen invariably as you start filming in like, uh, you know, I guess the, uh, around June for the September, you start to fall behind. The first, when you're filming in June, you're like five months away before it goes on the air. Yeah. But every episode takes 10 days to film and there's only seven days in a week. So by the time you get to like, you know, um, October, you're finishing the episodes like maybe a few days ahead of time. So invariably fall behind and go, you know what? I cannot withdraw myself for the, two or three weeks to take, three weeks really, pre-production, shooting, and then post-production. I can't withdraw from being the executive producer and showrunner of this show for three weeks. I've got to rewrite every episode. I have to go to the dailies. So I'd keep, so the first opportunity I had to direct in all this time was Tales from the Crypt. Yes. And uh, I did an episode with Dent, with, with uh, Kyle, Kyle McLaughlin, uh, which is on everybody's list of the top 10 Tales from the Crypt episodes. Also one of the few episodes that's outdoors. Yes. Uh, so that was my directing sample, and that was getting me even more opportunities to write and direct the movie. Um, so um, I get a phone call from um, some people I've been working with already. I ended up uh, prior to this, I guess it was the early '90s. Um, I got an opportunity to work on a adaptation of a comic book called Xenozoic Tales, which was a uh, Eisner-winning, uh, highly regarded uh, uh, comic book and graphic novel. 
which was be called Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, Capcom had uh, gotten the rights to make the video game. Uh, so I was doing the animated show uh, as an executive producer. And because I was doing that, uh, they said, we want you to work on the home video game, you know, animation video game. They figured it's not the same, but there's a Venn diagram overlap. So I was the executive producer and helped design the Sega system that was the CD, now forgotten Sega system, had some good games. And in fact, um, there was a young programmer who was a graduate student and he was losing, he just lost his student visa. He desperately needed, needed a, a, a work visa. So I got him his first opportunity to stay in America as an immigrant and uh, have his work visa. His name was uh, Alan uh, Oswald. Oh yeah, Elon, Elon Musk. Really? You yeah. <laughs> you're you're too big. <laughs> You can look it up, look up my name, Elon Musk, you will see Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. All right, so um, anyway, uh, Capcom was happy with the video game and the TV show. Uh, and I get a call, they're Capcom executives, they're flying in from Japan. They wanna meet a variety of people at different studios to make a movie of Street Fighter. So Steve, are you from, you, Capcom knows you, you'll be one of the first people they see. Uh, can you come up with a pitch for Street Fighter uh, they're going to be here next week. So this is like on a Wednesday and they're going to be on Monday. So I go, are you, are you familiar with it? Yeah, I go to the arcade with my kids. I had, you know, I, I got young kids. I put a lot of quarters in those machines. I'm very familiar with the, with the, uh, uh, with, with Street Fighter. All right, you come up with a pitch. Sorry, if I come up with a pitch and they go with it, I want to direct the movie. Fine, done deal. So now they sent me like a whole care package of material to read to familiarize myself with Street Fighter beyond the game. So in Japan, there's this whole lore. Each character has a biography. Um, mm -hmm. There's a thing in Japan about blood type. They have thing, here we have astrology. You know, someone said, well, what's your sign? Uh, you know, uh, uh, and in Japan, there's a thing about blood type. They have a thing, maybe not Japan, maybe all of Asia, that your blood type determines personality type. So when you look at the biography of a character in Street Fighter, in the original Japanese material, it's, it has their blood type. I don't know why. <laughs> all right. But as I'm looking at this material, none of it is about the tournaments. It's all about the past lives of the characters, about like their interaction when they're not fighting, who knows whom, uh, who's dated whom. And then all the stuff about General Bison, it's like he's a Bond villain. In the game, he's just fighting you, but all the background, he has an army, he took over a country, and there was, a, there was actually a foldout. It was this, totally in Japanese, I, you know, the, the stuff they gave me. There's a foldout of Bison's secret base. And it's like a Bond movie. It's underground. It's underneath like a temple. And he's got missiles and submarines. And I go, well, this is the way to go. Not only that, in my, so when I go to the, when I said to the people before the, the, the Capcom people come in, I said, look, this is the stuff they're giving me. It's, it's a bigger canvas than the game. And I think there's a problem with the tournament. First off, by this time, with the exception of Enter the Dragon, which is the original tournament movie, which is great. It's a tournament to the death. All of these tournament movies are usually super low budget movies. Yes. There have been all these super low budget movies about, you know, um, about, you know, uh, martial arts tournaments, and they're very predictable. There is no doubt that Jean Claude Van Damme is going to win. And even in a sports movie that is not martial arts, like Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise, he's in an accident. I'm sorry. His leg is broken in eight times. His leg is broken in three places. His rotator cup cuff has to be replaced. 
I'm afraid he'll never drive again. Now, if you're watching the movie, you look at your watch, it's a date night. You know, maybe I can get this girl to come back to my apartment. You go, wait a minute, this movie's got another hour to run. I think Tom Cruise is going to is going to drive yeah. again and probably win. So with the very exception of Rocky, the first one, yeah. where he loses, but he wins, it's, it's inevitable where you're going with the tournament movie. So when they came in from Japan to meet me, and I turned, learned out later when I had got dealt with them on a regular basis, that a lot of these executives spoke English, but in the first meeting, they pretended they didn't. So the translator would give them a minute to think about what they wanted to say, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, so um, I said all this. I said, you know, I think we should get beyond the tournament. It should be like a James Bond movie. Um, and also we got too many characters. Now, when I said that, I saw a big reaction and I, and they go, we, but we have their, but fans have their favorite characters. I said, nonetheless, let me give you an example. Seven, it's, it's scientifically proven historically. Seven is about the most things people can keep in their mind. There's a reason there's seven sins, uh, seven virtues, seven wonders, the ancient world, seven. Can you name all seven dwarfs? Nobody in the room can name all seven dwarfs. I'll give you the opportunity right now. Name all seven dwarfs. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. <laughs> you must remember one of them. Yes, yeah, sleepy, dozy, dark, um, bashful. And I think that's me. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Okay. So most, most the one actually the one people always forget is bashful. But right. there's dark, sleepy, sneezy, sneezy, uh, uh, dopey. You know, yeah. but anyway, but nobody. That's my point. So I'm going to focus on seven characters. So, all right, fine. And then they talked about casting and they had this fantasy of trying to get Stallone short. They said, you cannot afford any of those guys. Not only that, you want to make a PG movie. They said, we want to make a PG movie, PG-13, because teenagers will see that and the younger kids will go and they know younger kids play the game. But you don't want an R-rated movie because the kids won't be able to go. And you're Stallone short. Not only cannot afford them, they the won't do that an R-rated movie. So finally they decided they worked out that maybe they could afford John Claude Van Damme. And I said to them at the time, look, the problem with John Claude Van Damme is they're going to expect an R-rated movie. And he says, well, you know, well, make it as tough as you can. Can you do PG-13, but make it as tough as possible? Like, yeah, okay, fine. Um, but what about his accent? He's supposed to be an American character. He said, and they go, what accent? Because they realize <laughs> he's dubbed, he's dubbed in the Japanese there. So at one point there was dialogue in the movie where explained he was from Louisiana. And it's, it's, that's a standard way you explain a French accent. But as the movie got put together and you cut it and trying to get to length, somehow that line of dialogue uh, fell out. Um, so they make a deal with John Claude Van Damme for $7 million, which is like $2 million more than he'd ever gotten at that point, which left very little money for the rest of the cast. Uh, so now the decision was made, what do we do for the rest of the cast? Do we hire martial artists? Because there's stars like Mark Costco's. There's all kinds of piece. There's uh, Beverly, uh, I forget her name, um, Cynthia Rock. Uh, Rock yes. From uh, even uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think about uh, uh, the uh, the actress in uh, in uh, uh, drag. I'm losing my mind here. Um, uh, Leaping Dragon. You know, uh, uh, yes, Michelle Yeoh. Now, there's all kinds of, and they say, you know what? We do not have the money to hire any of those people. Do we want to hire martial artists? They will have an unknown martial artist. And then the decision was, you know what? The, 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 the moves, the fighting moves in the game have no relation to reality. There's not like karate chops. 
and and spinning round kicks, you know, or 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 hip throws. It's all this fantastical stuff. So if you got real martial artists, you would have to teach them how to make these video game moves look real. We might as well get actors and teach. It's, you're it's, you're you're, you're going to be in the same situation teaching them stuff that doesn't exist. Let's go for the actors, and we'll teach the martial arts. And so as we design the movie. Um, and we, we, so we, we auditioned a lot of like rising young stars to be the rest of the cast. They wanted to get a big, they also wanted to get a big name for the villain. Had we had, at the, it was a very last minute decision. They wanted to get another big name for the villain. Um, at that point, we were definitely going, we were thinking of casting Stephen Lang. He had done the best uh, uh, audition for General Bison. And he went on to play, he's very well known, you know, of course, yeah. Avatar and, and, and uh, uh, Don't Breathe, uh, these kind of films. So um, they wanted to get a big, and apparently Raul Julia's children you know, play the video game. So they saw the script delivered in an envelope. They go, Street Fighter, they lost their minds. So I designed the movie. Uh, we said, we're going to do a 10-week shoot. And I said, okay, we want to film location work in Thailand to be the mythical country of Shadaloo. So I said, all right, we're going to film eight weeks on the sound stages in Australia. I'm a product of the studio system. Everything goes great. And we'll film two weeks of work in Thailand to get the local color and the actual exteriors and so forth and so on. So then they produced the shooting schedule for the movie and I look at it and the shooting schedule of the movie is like seven weeks in Thailand and three weeks in Australia. And I go, this, this, this doesn't make any sense. I don't want to be on location, you know, lose control. And they go, you, no, no, our, with our $30 million budget, it will look like a $100 million movie. The money goes so far in Thailand and there are subcontractors that we that are that will you know have all the equipment they speak the language that's the way to go so i'm saying to my agent at the time you know this makes no sense i don't steve you've never directed the movie before you're responsible for 30 million dollars they know what they're doing and i go excuse me i was a showrunner in television and although i was never responsible for 30 million dollars for an episode i was responsible for 40 million dollars for a whole season yeah. And I had to, and I never went a day over schedule and I never went over budget except when the network said spend extra money on this episode. It sweeps weeks. And I'm telling you, the schedule is a recipe for disaster. And I was never able to get any support on my opinion on that thing. So the plan was that I wrote was we're going to do all the dialogue scenes up front. The movie was pretty much, let, let's just say it's 10 weeks. It's, let's say it's five weeks is mostly dialogue acting and five weeks explosion stunts, it's not, not an exact split. Let's do all the dialogue scenes up front. Most of the dialogue are scenes involving Raul Julia and his minions. And while we are doing the dialogue scenes, elsewhere in a gym, our non-martial artists, young actors, are gonna be trained in all of the stunts and rehearse all their fights, which you will then do the last five weeks. That's the plan. So now we go to Australia to do the movie, I'm like one plane behind some of the other crew. So I think we had to land, uh, we land at the airport and uh, we're waiting to drive to the studio. And I get a message to call this number right away. And it's Marilyn Vance, our costume designer. And she says, I just uh, had a fitting with Ralph Julia. We have a real problem. He looks like deathly ill. I'm gonna have to pad the suit out. I don't know what's going on here, but don't be too shocked when you see him. So now I see Raul Choi, he's deathly, incredibly thin. He looks skeletal. And they say he had, they say he was making a movie in Brazil 
uh, about that, which is a true story based about a, a priest who was helping indigenous people who was murdered by, uh, uh, you know, by terrorists. Um, and I, I got, he had a stomach virus. He lost a lot of weight. This turned out not to be true. We learned later on, he had just had surgery for stomach cancer. Yes. So now I go, oh my God, I cannot shoot him looking like this. Now you design, normally design a shooting schedule around efficiency. If we're doing a, you know, a crime story, you would film all the police station scenes at once, including the first scene, someone's committing these crime, these, these this series of bank robberies and the scene, we've got you now, throw them in the jail. You do it all at once. You don't leave and go to the, you don't go out and come yeah. back. I had to discard that entire plan now and try and push all of Raul Julia's work to the back of the shoot. Anything he was in had to go to the end of the movie, leaving everything else to the front. Now, the only scene he was in that I cannot push for logistic regions is the scene where he first appears in the, where he goes down to the laboratory and says, Dr. Dalsim, how are our experiments going? Where they're doing experiments on a prisoner. So if you look at the movie again, he looks very gaunt in that scene. We tried to hide it with lighting and makeup, but the rest of the movie doesn't look bad. Yeah. We filmed that like the first week and everything else was like eight weeks later. But now these actors haven't been trained and practiced the fights. So they're basically being shown what they're going to do in the fight scene, like 15 minutes before the fight scene. And this is no fault of the fight people or the stunt coordinators. We were trapped in the situation. So that's the first thing that's going wrong. Another thing that would happen is uh, John Claude said, I want to go to Hong Kong for the, uh, we're in Australia by now, to the uh, Planet Hollywood opening. And somebody lets him go, which he should not do, right? So Monday, where is he? Oh, he missed his flight. And he, missed, he was partying too hard. Yeah. Later on, he subsequently did an interview with Playboy magazine where he admitted he had a drug problem and he yeah. was high as a kite during the whole movie. I never discussed it at all until after he said it and people would say, is that true? And I go, yes, it's true. I did not break the news that he had already uh, come in. Although uh, I think the Observer, uh, uh, some uh, UK publication uh, said, Stephen D'Souza out of his star. No, the star out of himself. On top of that, we knew we had a problem. We, we hired a handler to keep him from misbehaving, but the handler ended up getting him drugs. Right. It turned out, right? So we had that going on. Then let me just tell you about shooting in Thailand. They say, listen, we've got a great soundstage for you and it's going to do double duty. There's a building that used to be the headquarters of the Coast Guard for Thailand because all rivers. Yeah, the Coast Guard does the ocean mm -hmm. river. They're building a new Coast Guard headquarters. It's this giant building and the exterior of it could be your United Nations headquarters. Uh, if you've seen the movie, that building, we, that building yeah. we, inside was going to be our soundstage. So we get there, but they don't, and they put a floor in. It was always, the boats could pull in, but they had put a floor in. But they didn't tell us it had a tin roof. And we arrived there during the rainy season. So we tried to film inside there. It's like machine guns, the rain hitting on the roof. All of the lighting equipment was subpar, was constantly shorting out. We start to film, the lights would go out, it would take 30 minutes to get them working again. After two weeks in Thailand, somehow we were three weeks behind. Finally, they say, you know what? Thailand's not working out. Let's go to Australia early. I go, yeah, you're no kidding. And now I have to rewrite the script so that scenes we're gonna film in Thailand, right, have to be filmed in Australia, which looks totally different. So there's a scene late in the movie where he's driving his boat to Bison's headquarters which we intended to film in Thailand and some river tributaries, but now we had to film in Australia. And if you pay close attention 
to one of the scenes where his boat's going down this remote river to like Bison's Hidden Fortress. If you look in the background, you see a bunch of little sticks with white flags. It's a housing development that was about to be built up like, you know, a housing development. So we got away with that. Uh, we built the Bison's Palace in Australia, that whole like, you know, headquarters. Uh, but, there were, and, but there were a couple of scenes you're supposed to be on the street in, 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 in Thailand. We had to fake it in Australia, build like entire Thai street for a couple of sequences. Uh, so this is the whole history of the shoot. We get done to the end of the shoot. We look at the movie. We go, these fights, you know, are really weak because the guys did not have the training time. So we managed, and Capcom agreed. So we had the money to go up to um, Vancouver uh, to, um, we rebuilt some of the sets we had in Australia and reshot portions of several fights to amp the fights up. And by this time, we had the actors go up and train for three weeks before we did 10 days of reshoots. So that was, all right, so fine, great, finally. So now we're in post-production. We finish the movie. We send it into the Motion Picture Association uh, for its rating. Now, you may have seen a movie called This Movie Is Not Yet Rated. Yes, you have. Okay, so they show this random group of people that gives us the rating. There's like, you know, a dentist and a priest and a school teacher, but, you know. So uh, maybe they're unfamiliar with the game or maybe like there had been, been, you know, some crime that week in the newspaper or, uh, you know, one of your average, like, you know, random shootings like they have in America. For whatever reason, they look at this movie. Now, remember, I come out of television where television is not, it's like PG. Yeah. It shows I did, The Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic, but all those shows were on at eight o'clock. And they had a rule on network television. You cannot kill anybody before 8.30. If you're watching a rerun to this day of Knight Rider, or the A-Team, or the Six Million Dollar Man, or the Fall Guy, any of those shows, they're on at eight o'clock. You could, if you're watching them, you'll see a half hour, it is the first time you see anyone killed on camera. And of course, it's ridiculous. They really think that every child in America is in bed at 8.30. And what about the time difference? Yeah. When it's, you know, when it's 8.30. So nonetheless, this was the regulation. So if you're watching a rerun of Six Million Dollar Man, be like this. All right, boss, I blew off that Michael Knight guy. He has no idea what we're doing. Only you and I know what we're doing. Boss, what are you doing? Put away that gun. Bang. Oh, 831. <laughs> what we used to do, we used to kill anybody on these shows, just in case the, the, the censors were, oh, we would always say wiggle a little bit. So after we'd kill everybody, we, we, this is the standard rule on all those shows. When anyone's supposed to be dead, we say, be lie there for a minute and then wiggle a little bit. So in case the network says you did too many killings, we, well, that guy went to the hospital. So you right. see he's still moving at the end there. So I knew how to shoot a PG-13 movie, believe it. They rate the movie R. And now the Capcom and Universal are in a, it's, oh my God, you cannot advertise toys for an R-rated movie. And this movie wants to sell toys. You cannot make a deal with a fast food company for a hamburger, Happy Meal, for an R-rated movie. They won't touch it. And they've already got the deals. The toys have been manufactured. They're like, you know, ready to ship. Yeah. The hamburger company has already got their posters and their cutouts of John Claude Van Damme. This is like a nightmare. It's okay, we'll recut the movie. So I recut the movie and I have to do the stuff you do on Saturday morning. When I did the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs show, Saturday morning has the most strict rules. So let's say one of the bad guys is poaching baby dinosaurs. The, the hero of the show is like a park ranger for dinosaurs. Yeah. So what we do on, on that show would be, you see the hero pull his fist back throw a punch at the camera, then you cut to a tree, you hear an off-stage punch, 
and here's someone, uh, and the bad guy falls into the shot. We could not show the fist hitting the face, right? That's how tame it was. So I'm like trying, getting just short of that. I'm cutting out the most impact. I'm cutting out any blood. I'm cutting, and all the fights that I had fought to make rougher, I now have to make softer. We send it into the MPAA for another rating. It's rated R again. Now, now we're cutting back on the fights even more, you know, making it wussier and wussier. We turn it in. You're only allowed three times, right? Right. Turn it in the third time. They give us G. <laughs> now there's total panic. Okay, the toy people will be happy. The hamburger people will be happy. But now the, the kids will be happy. Yeah. Because the teenage, no teenager is going to go see that movie. We wanted the the little kids to say, "Mommy, mommy, can I go to the movie with Billy?" My older brother, well, it's PG-13, okay. Billy doesn't want to go anymore. I'm not yeah. seeing that, right? What are we going to do? We can't submit it again. I said, don't worry, I got this. So I have John, we're, we're finished the movie. We the, the negative is locked now, right? Because we, we sent it in a third time, it's done. Yeah. It's locked contractually. I got this. I have John Claude come in to the editing room. This is where we're putting the sound effect. We're all done take out a microphone right there in the editing room. And I have him say, there's a scene in the movie where he's rappelling into the villain's headquarters and we're shooting up and he can't see his face. I have him say, four years of ROTC for this shit. <laughs> we send the movie in to the MPAA. Two days later, we get an angry phone call from them. We saw what you did. You think we don't pay attention? You snuck in that curse word? Well, guess what? You just lost your G rating. You're PG-13 now. <laughs> That'll teach you. And go, oh, no. Oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? Now we have a PG-13 rating. That sounds like a hellish experience from start to finish. What, how did you feel once the film had been completed or even well, in the middle? At, at, at one point, I said, can I get off this movie? No, no, you can't leave. If you leave this movie now, that would be bad buzz for the movie. You've got to stay the course. I was, you know. When uh, when they moved to Australia, I, I actually said it's exactly what I said was going to happen. I predicted it. Now we're now we're three weeks behind, and they're not extending our shooting schedule. We still have to be out Christmas Day. It's impossible. I went out of this movie. Get somebody else, and I got talked out of that. I talked out of leaving the picture for creative reasons. So my my result was relief. And then of course, the audience expected R-rated movie from John Claude. They expected better fights. You know, you know, yeah. rougher rougher action. So the movie is like, the, the action is very, very soft until you get to the end of the, but I had situations like, there's one scene in the movie where the 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 the, the good guys working across pur purposes, um, finally they realize we're on the same side. And I think Ken and Ryu uh, break into a prison cell uh, to free uh, Balrog and um, uh, I forget the, uh, the uh, sumo wrestler character's name. So in the script, there was supposed to be a fight between the four of them and like a dozen dozen guards. This was the this was when John this was when John Claude didn't come back from Hong Kong, and I'm supposed to film with John Claude that day. And I go, what else can we film on, uh, today on this set? We've already lit the set, they're ready to go, and it was the dungeon set. And is there anything else we can film here? And that John and I said the only thing I could film was the rescue of the guys from the cell which has not been rehearsed. These four guys have not rehearsed a fight against a dozen guys. So I ended up doing like out of desperation, I did a thing where we just played it for comedy where one guard comes around the corner and two fists hit him. 
and they take the keys off. That that was instead of a big fight that's supposed to be in the movie. Uh, so uh, the film got almost universal skating reviews. And the craziest thing about it was this movie is so stupid, it's funny. Now, yeah. I don't know if anybody could watch that movie and not know it was basically a comedy. It's a live-action cartoon, isn't it, really? I mean, that's... It's a totally cartoon. The, yeah. the color palette is a cartoon. It began as a video game. We were embracing the video game color palette. How you could look at that movie and not think it's supposed to be funny. Some of the dialogue in that movie, he says, he says, you got paid? <laughs> Quick, change the channel. Like if you, by the way, how many memes has this movie started? For me, it was Tuesday. <laughs> of course. I guess you didn't see that. You know, I mean, there's so many. That's, yeah, I mean, you said you made it like a, a Saturday morning cartoon and that's exactly what it is. It's yeah. it, it's that sort of feature length. And you go from, you've done that, which is a, a video game movie. What made you then decide to do Tomb Raider? You know, get involved in that. I thought you might've decided no more video games or. Well, again, I guess what happened was, I guess because first of all, that was, uh, John, it was tied with uh, Time Cop. It was John Claude's uh, two, mo two the only two movies John Claude did that made $100 million. So it was an incredibly profitable movie. It's still making money. I saw the other day, it makes, it makes, it makes like, uh, uh, to this day, uh, uh, Capcom is making like almost a million dollars a year from that movie. Right. From the, to the toys and the reruns and things like that. So it was a profitable video game movie. You got to remember at this point, all the video game movies are tanked. Yeah. You know? So when Tomb Raider came around, Larry Gordon, who I worked with many, many times in the past, he had the rights to it. Uh, so uh, I got a call from him. He said, listen, you're familiar with the game Tomb Raider? Yes, you know, quarters, kids, home video, everything. I uh, said, listen, uh, I had the rights to make this movie. Uh, my rights expire at the end of this year. If I am not in pre-production by the end of this year, I lose the rights. I've had three scripts written. None of them work. Can you come in? And uh, can you come in and do a um, uh, a rewrite of this movie? Uh, we're really, I need a page one rewrite. We're really, you know, out of money, but you and I go way back. I can just pay you. I, I can't pay you for a page one rewrite. Just pay you for like a poly. I go, sure, Larry, we have a long relationship. Uh, not only that, I had once been paid off for a movie that never happened. that got canceled, you know, contractually. So right. he said, it was like The Godfather. That it was actually the slowest movie. He said, when that movie got canceled, he says, Steve, Someday I will come to you <laughs> for a favor, you know, because, you know, I, I okay, obviously, so this was that favor. Um, so um, uh, I, I did that, and the picture was announced in the trades, uh, and uh, as luck would have it, the front page of Variety, um, uh, one of the studio executives at Paramount, uh, uh, who was a, a notoriously political, very rarely would have gotten a limb, he gives a quote to the front page of Variety, he says, Steve D'Souza has given us a franchise. The, say, the day after that appears, I get a call from Joel Silver, right? Uh, because you remember, Joel and Larry had broken up. Yeah. It was like a bad romance, a divorce. And it was like, who gets the kids? Each of them wanted custody of me. So I managed <laughs> to walk a tightrope for a little while where I was working for both of them, neither one did it. But Joel called my agent and said, I see that Steve D'Souza is working for Larry. We are, you know, consider this a divorce. <laughs> so I go, well, wait a minute, I was supposed to be the custody battle, not the, the other, the, the correspondent. So anyway, so my relationship with Joel Silver ended because of, that, because of this headline on Variety. And then, uh, as luck would have it, again, how none of these things happen in a vacuum, right after this announcement, 
and uh, Stephen Her Stephen Herrick was going to direct uh, the uh, the movie. Uh, yeah. It had a start date. Larry had the movie called um, Mystery Man. Yes, it came out and flopped. And I think part of the problem was it was a parody of superhero teams, but there had never been a superhero team movie. The general audience had no idea there were things like the Justice League or the Avengers. So a parody of something no one is familiar with, there's no way that's work. gonna work. Yeah. Be because of that failure of that movie, the studio was not confident going forward with Larry Gordon's choice of director, Stephen Herrick. And so Herrick was gone and they said, we have a deal with another director who's on the lot, who has a movie fall apart, he's coming on. So now the new director comes on and has had no influence on the script at all and wants to have an influence on the script. So what he did, because now the movie's greenlit, the start date hasn't changed. He looks at the three previous scripts, looks at my script and takes them all apart and does like a Frankenstein script <laughs> of putting them all together. So if you remember the reviews of Tomb Raider, uh, they were scathing and said yeah. the movie, it didn't get one good, it said the movie makes no sense. There's no Tomb Raiding in the movie, uh, one thing after the other. Uh, but it was so anticipated, it was very successful. So literally the Monday morning after the movie opens, they say, somebody says, we want to do a sequel right away. And somebody says, you know, we all like Steve D'Souza's script. And all that's left from his script in the first movie are some of the action scenes, but the plot of that picture was pretty good. Let's shoot D'Souza's script for the sequel. <laughs> so because some of it was the same as the first movie, they had another writer come in and unwrite the parts of my movie that were still left over in the first movie. So if you look at the second movie, I have a screen credit on the second movie. I didn't touch it. <laughs> I have a screen credit on the second movie because of the recycled parts from my first script. Only in Hollywood? Do you, only, in, uh, yeah. only in Hollywood. I mean, your career seems to be, one of the things is, you seem to be a very fast writer that delivers things in chaos. Yeah, well, that's, that, that, that's what television production was like in those days. Right. Now, streaming, I mean, they shoot, I mean, they take, they take, they'll take a month to do a one-hour show in streaming, but in our, back in our day, back, back in the 20th century, you know, it's a mad race against the clock. You've got to be fast in television or like you're not going to be working in television. And a lot of these people like Larry Gordon uh, and other people, I met them in television. So they knew, I, I, I just saw an interview um, uh, with uh, John McKiernan and John McKiernan was at the London Action Festival, I think yes. last month. Um, and he was very kind to me in some interviews saying, we, Steve D'Souza was like fast and brilliant. We could have made it without him. It's very nice to hear. Um, so, uh, basically you gotta be fast in television and that doesn't mean you get to slow down when you're in features. I'd like to, but, <laughs> but. And also you seem to deal, you've, you've dealt with a lot of, I mean, stars. I mean, you, you've been writing for huge stars from you know, Bruce Willis, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Eddie Murphy. I mean, that must be difficult juggling the, the talent. Well, it depends. I mean, Joel Silver has, has, has a theory that. Uh, when you that when you do a third picture with an actor, you're in trouble. The first two go smoothly. The third time, they start like you know uh, acting, acting out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that may be that that may be true. Um, on the other hand, um, I have a reputation again coming up out of television. I mean, if you're in a movie with an actor who is like uh, a, a drama queen uh, or uh, 
an artiste. Uh, don't talk to me when I'm on, don't talk to me when I'm not in character. Don't look me in the eye. If you're one of those people, you say, "All right, I only have to put up with this stuff for I only have to put up with this stuff for seven weeks. I can bite my tongue for seven weeks." <laughs> but when you're doing a television series, you're with somebody for like eight months. Yeah, you must be able to get along with them and talk to them and know how to avoid tripwires uh, <laughs> and uh, get them to redo a scene without like, you know, listen, I like what you did, but it may not cut. So let's do it one more. We'll do two versions. One year. No, you learn how to like, yeah. you know, soften more things. More. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, if I had an observation to make. Actors who come from the stage are the best because act, first of all, if you're a stage actor, it's in the Playwrights Guild, which is both cr across, the, it's transcontinental. The yeah. Playwrights Guild is, you cannot change a word of a play without the approval of the playwright. No such rule exists on motion pictures. Also, uh, in addition to stage actors, when I've worked with actors whose parents or, or relatives are, had, were in the motion picture business, yeah. not necessarily as actors, but as, you know, composers or film editors or stunt coordinators, they would be at the dinner table and mom comes home late from work. He says, sorry, I'm late, but so-and-so had a conniption fit, literally <laughs> tore up the costumes, yeah. ripped the costumes, cut the costumes up with the scissors and said, I won't wear that crap. And that's why I didn't get back home till midnight. You hear these stories about actors acting out. Yeah. Uh, and I, I swear this is true. Every actor I've worked with has been a dream, either came from the stage or it came from a family. But George Clooney, his aunt, was a movie star. Yeah. You've never heard a bad story about George Clooney. His uncle um, was an actor. Um, uh, he was in the, uh, uh, help me here. And uh, Miguel Ferrer. Miguel Ferrer, right. Yeah. Uh, no, that's his cousin. Miguel Ferrer is. Jose. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jose. Jose. Right. Again, you never hear any stories about Miguel Ferrer acting up or George Clooney acting up. Um, so, um, and yet the actors who get discovered come out of like uh, TV commercials, right? They're the ones that maybe it's like the imposter syndrome, that, you know, just imposter syndrome. Maybe they're nervous. So like while they're at the top, you know, this, this happened randomly. I woke up one day, I was a movie star. It could end tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, so uh, to give you an example, um, on Ricochet, I get a call from Denzel Washington at like 9.45. Hi, this is Denzel. Oh, hi, I hope you don't mind. I got your number from the production office. Uh, yeah, what can I, is it too late? No, no, I, I don't go to bed this early. What, what can I, listen, I have, a, I have a question about the script. And I go, okay, here it goes. He's on page 57. When I, when I leave Kevin Pollack, I say ciao. I don't know what it was at the time. I, uh, I said, I don't think I'd say ciao. Could I say uh, hasta mañana or I'll see you tomorrow? I go, uh, yeah. Uh, what else? He says, no, that's it. No, what's that? <laughs> I did a movie with Timothy Dalton, which I could recommend if you want to see me working in other genres. I did a horror movie with Timothy Dalton, yes. which is on Amazon. I think it's on Amazon in the UK called Possessed. Yeah. Timothy Dalton, which is uh, based on a nonfiction book about the actual case that inspired The Exorcist. So the actual case was very ambiguous. And I tried to make the movie ambiguous. Although we got some great reviews. One reviewer said, although the movie tried to be ambiguous and leave the audience to wonder if it was, you know, possession or just the mental case, once you put the sound effects and the music in, the scary music, it kind of tilts you to the supernatural. And it was a valid criticism. 
But anyway, on this movie, uh, same thing, Timothy Dalton says, listen, I want to talk to you about the last scene, which is a big scene. I go, all right, here it comes. Uh, I want to talk about my dialogue in the last scene. I go, okay, you know, I think this would be much more powerful if I said nothing. I mean, you could have heard my jaw hit the floor. <laughs> ha ha have a movie star say, I think in this last scene, I should say nothing. And in fact, I should, you shouldn't even notice I'm in this scene. I should just walk off in the background. Like they've totally forgotten about me. Like the Lone Ranger is going, oh, okay, great. Yeah. I'm done with that. Then you have a situation where there's a movie that my name is not on. Uh, there's many movies I've worked on that I do not have a yes. screen credit because I either did not do enough work to warrant a screen credit or I didn't want a screen credit or whatever reason. Um, so there's a movie called Striking Distance. Yep. Bruce, Bruce Willis, Willis again, yeah. He's a river patrolman. And on that movie, Bruce Willis ad-libbed so much that when they had a test screening, no one could tell what was going on. Uh, to give you like an exaggerated example, like towards the end of the movie, this is not really in the movie, uh, if the hero detective says, stop that man with the cane. What? He's the murderer. His watch is on his right hand, so he's left-handed and he's walking with the limp. That's the killer. Okay, fine. But you have to have a scene in the movie earlier where they're looking at the crime scene and says, the killer is left-handed and walks with a limp. <laughs> if you don't have that, you go, what the hell? How is that the end it, of the movie? There's no payoff, yeah. Right. No, no, there's like, it makes no sense. So we ad-libbed on this movie so much that it was incomprehensible. So uh, they call me up and say, listen, we know you get along with Bruce. We've got to recut this movie and reshoot it and straighten it out. So I go to meet him uh, in, in, uh, on the trailer. Uh, we're going to do, to, uh, to, to, he, was, he was working on another show at the time. And he says, you know, I know what they want. They want this to be like another diehard. And I go, yeah, Bruce, I know, but we don't want to keep copying ourselves. Let's outwit them together. <laughs> you know, so that's the way I got it. But on this yeah. one, of the, one of the things that, to make this movie work, the movie covered a 10-year period, like a serial killer who had come back again. I said, forget that. It's all now. I said, let's make that opening scene that was 10 years before. Let's have it in the middle of the movie as one of the other murders from the killer. Yeah, but the, the cars that drive by are all, it says, you know, there's old cars on the road. It's, you know, nobody's going to look at the cars, like when the murderer is throwing a body in the river. Uh, so I turned the movie inside out, shot 30 minutes of new material. One of the things that went wrong in this movie, to give you an example, there's a scene where there's a barbecue, of co cops are having a barbecue, and uh, Bruce has an argument with another character, uh, and he says to this actor who's like, just working a couple of days, when we had the argument, Instead of just telling me, screw you, uh, throw your beer bottle at me. That's how mad you are at me. And I'll duck. And the, the, the actors, this is the movie star. He says, we don't, don't just push me, throw your beer bottle at me. This you know, poor actor is going to listen to Bruce on the next take. Yeah. Nobody says anything to the director. Nobody sees anything to the stunt coordinator. The guy throws a full bottle of beer at Bruce Willis, who ducks. The beer bottle hits an extra, cuts his head open, has to go to the hospital, get eight stitches, and the movie shuts down for two hours. It's like, this is beyond ad-libbing. Yeah. Uh, so um, you compare that to like, you know, to uh, like I said, Timothy Dalton saying, I think I should have no dialogue. So it's- uh, it, it, That's it's great for you, yeah. <laughs> you know what, Stephen? I've taken you so much more longer than I even anticipated. I, I mean, I could listen to you all day, um, but I realize it's probably approaching lunch for you at the minute. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're in the dark. You, you, you've lost your power even. You're completely black here. What, what? It, the sun's set here, so this oh, is... Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
So this, this, I've gone from day to night. But again, Stephen, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, right. I'll definitely be in touch. All right, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Movies and Focus podcast. You can download it wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope that you tell your friends about it. That's it for this time, and I'll see you at the movies.